Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Mad One Looks Podcast. My name is Sim. Along with me is my co-host, Mahin Islam. We have a wonderful show for you guys this evening, this afternoon actually. One of our closest friends and uh, returning guest and a man who needs no in- introduction, Sheikh Yasser Qadi. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's been, I think, what, seven years, six years since I was last on? Alhamdulillah. Yeah, nice to be here. yeah th- thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Mahin, Sheikh, uh, cover your ears. We're going to compliment you a little bit. Sheikh Yasser Qadi. Yeah. First ballot Hall of Fame when he retires? Pro- prob- I mean, like, I- I've heard uh, th- there's a guy in our WhatsApp group that calls him, like, the Sheikh of Islam of America. Oh, mashallah. Like, uh, 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 Ali Aburiki. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> mashallah. Ali's, a, Ali's a very learned as well, and uh, that's a huge compliment. Uh, thank you for joining us, uh, Sheikh. How are you? And uh, have you listened to the Mad Mamluks? We have. Uh, grown up quite a bit since you last spoke to us uh, a couple of years ago. Is it has it been a couple of years, Mahim? It hasn't been seven years. No, but it was 2016. Yeah, yeah 2016, right? When our, when our first only three years? Are you sure? Yeah. Uh, my memory is like four or five. Anyway, <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll be honest with you, bro. I, I don't really listen to English podcasts. Nothing against you guys no, per se. No worries. No worries. We're we're kind of cool now, though. If you if you oh. don't. <laughs> I'll listen to you, but I, I know you guys are active. I'm really appreciating all the good work that you're doing. But I'll be honest with you. I typically don't listen to uh, to English podcasts overall. As long as you're not listening to a competitor. <laughs> okay. Or maybe your but, kids can listen to us. He he went on some British show uh, the other week. I, I was. Uh, Bro, I'm friends with everybody that wants to be. Friends I had a little me. bit of gira going on. Because <laughs> that that show went like pretty viral too. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, they're clickbaity. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry right. for the shade. No problem. <laughs> Sheikh, you've been in the news recently. The news? Really? I didn't know I was in the news. M- Muslim Twitter news is is what I call news now. M- Muslim Twitter <laughs> is where the news happens, and um, what what I don't like to use the word transition because transition is like uh, has many different connotations these days. You know, from uh, relating to gender, let's just say. So uh, you you've been a person who has changed quite a bit since their since your early years, um, since your Al Maghrib days when you had taught people like me, Mahin, and uh, many other students, um, many things related to the Aqidah, the core beliefs of Islam. Um, I wanted you to help us understand a little bit about your progression of thought. Um, I've noticed recently you've uh, started distancing yourself from uh, the strain of uh, Muslims called the Salafis, the Orthodox uh, Muslims out there. What are your thoughts regarding that? Are you distancing? Do you no longer consider yourself Salafi, or are you just simply distancing yourself from those uh, core tenets? Wow, you just dived straight in, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> in all the preliminaries, let me just go straight to the middle of the ocean. And... <laughs> well, yeah, the problem comes with these types of, of, of podcasts and interviews is that we have people that are listening that are A, not interested in these things, it won't benefit them. And I feel bad and sorry to bring up these issues. I don't, I wish, wallahi, I wish we could cater our talks to our audiences. One of the problems of the internet, one of the problems of YouTube, of podcasts, is that it's the quote unquote democratization of knowledge. Everything is available to everybody. So what happens is, as Ibn Masroo said, speak to the people at their level. 
it's really impossible almost. Actually, no, it is impossible to do that on YouTube or on any social media. The only time that can happen is in a private classroom where I choose my students, right? So you've asked a question that large groups of people, frankly, couldn't care less about. They want to benefit from any positive ilm that will bring them closer to Allah's Messenger. And Alhamdulillah, that's my main audience base. That's group A. Group B are the critics that are logging on right now and listening, a'udhu billah, a'udhu billah, just to find faults and do the refutations. And I don't think that's a positive attitude. You shouldn't be listening to other people just to be like a, like one of my teachers, so like a scorpion waiting to strike. That's not a positive. But there are people, I'm positive, they're like that as well. So they've already made up their minds. They're going to hunt something wrong. They're going to release part seven or eight of their refutation videos. And I don't think that's conducive to their attitude or to the ummah, but there are people like that. Yeah. No matter what I say, it can and will be used against me in their court of law. Alhamdulillah, not the court of Allah. Of Allah and then you have category three which is definitely the group that I would love to have this conversation with, right? And category three are those that they are kind of sort of struggling with some of the things I struggled with 10 years ago, 15 years ago. They're wanting to be told more explicitly about my own transition because they're already thinking about it, but they need to, they just need somebody who's done it before them. And they need to hear the pros and cons, etc. That's the group I wish, I wish I could kind of sort of demarcate and say, let's have a private conversation, right? Sheikh, you know, you, know, you know that, did you go silent? No, go ahead, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. So you, you know that when you first experienced uh, love for a scholar, when I was young, I was really into rock and roll, right? There was a band called Metallica, a really popular metal band. And everyone was, you know, they loved them like crazy, but then they started changing. They started changing to become more mainstream and they're more acceptable to the masses. And everyone's, their core followers, they said, how dare they change? And similarly, I think what happens is that there's a really deep connection that happens when we are introduced to Islam by people such as yourself, right? We develop a strong connection to you. And when you start changing, we feel like, well, I made a decision to follow Sheikh Yasser Qadi and now Sheikh Yasser Qadi is abandoning whatever he taught me. So it seems like um, it's almost like a an insult to my intelligence for following you in the first place. I don't know if that's the same, but Mahin could, could actually talk about this a lot because he actually went through a lot of well, uh, phases as well in his... Uh, it, it, when Sheikh Yasser, I, I feel like Sheikh Yasser, my impression, whenever I still meet him today, yeah. he still remembers the Mahin Islam that picked him up at the Columbus Airport 2005. And asked him about Rabia Matkhali. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I feel like that. Like, I feel like that's like it's like first impressions never go away, right? And I remember um, for you, I've always appreciated because when you first got back, though, I remember um, you could already see that you're like okay, because you were like I, I'm, I left Medina, and then the first thing I pick him up, and I'm like, hey, what do you think about like you know Sheikh Al Fozan and or Dawah Al Damaj and all this stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, these are like you know for those who don't know, these are like very specific place like you know within the salafi dawah these things whatnot and you were and you were you were your statement to me was wait a second you're in columbus ohio the small city how do you know about this stuff right i thought i left i thought when i left medina and came back to america i was like gonna get away from that and here all of a sudden like i'm two months out and i meet this dude right who's driving me around but i saw that you were already kind of like thinking like big picture I think you were now back then. I think you probably would have still identified as a Salafi. I don't. I don't want to like quote you, but I think that was kind of the. Even though you didn't use the word, but the conversations we were having were still were, were different than we they would be today. This is fifteen years ago. 
but at the time I was still figuring things out. So when you were switching things up, I moved to Chicago and I was getting interested in like all of a sudden Chicago's a different city. So you're learning about like Sufism and stuff. And I I remember I asked you one time in 2009, like, oh, what do, you, what do you think about like me joining a Sufi Tarika? And you were like, man, you're just confused. You're like, I, I worry about your faith. I think you told me this at Italian Express. So like for me, it was cool that you were changing, but I was I was switching things up at a different level. You know, there's an element of a joke in that as well. I mean, I wasn't really worried <laughs> about your faith. So when you say that, yeah, yeah. the audience should know we're very close friends. We're right. joking. And yeah. I did it like, seriously. I would have been like, so <laughs> he's like, joining a Sufi Tariqa is not going <laughs> to faith. Faith is just, it was a joke. Like one, one week, a Madkhali, the other week, Sufi Tariqa was like, bro. Yeah, yeah. You're right, right. So, 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 I, so I think for me, it was all, it was, when you when you were changing things up, I was already changing things up too. So I was like, it wasn't like I was attached to this Yasser Qadi from AudioIslam.com, like you know what I'm saying, yeah. from the old. Because because honestly, Sheikh Yasser, when I I didn't learn, know what Hadith was until I really listened to his, his like your your finished Hadith classes back in the day, right? So, but like to me, I wasn't attached to the old to Sheikh Yasser. I was like, oh, he, you were learning stuff. I was like, all right, it's a different perspective, and I was kind of going through that same thing. So I'm like, that's fine. Yeah, it, it wasn't an issue for me, uh, but I could see how some people who were attached because people say have that they're like, oh, hey, the I I was attached, and I told Sheikh um, when last time we met, and I told him like, hey, I said some mean things about you, yeah. <laughs> I asked you for forgiveness, <laughs> and we had a long conversation about this right an hour or so long trip back to the airport, and Sheikh uh, was very gracious and and very uh, understanding of of um, my my are, my evolution as well. Are no exaggeration many dozens of people that have come up to me and apologized for things that they said about me and um that's life bro no big deal wallahi i don't hold any grudge in my heart for anybody who is sincere so to answer your question and i will need some time to answer your questions so if you want me to answer your question i do some time to really to to to, to go into this and i reiterate what i'm about to say the main audience are students of knowledge who understand these issues if you don't understand these issues and, and they're not going to bring bring closer to allah there's not much benefit to hear these advanced stuff as for the critics may allah guide you and me if your intentions are are the way that they are it's not healthy to just want to be pouncing on people and misquoting let me try to to take a step back uh so i would like to state that uh as allah is my witness that whatever i taught throughout my life i taught it sincerely believing it to be uh, the correct understanding and, and something that will bring people closer to Allah. I seek Allah's refuge from ever being double-faced. And I don't recall ever teaching something or saying something that I didn't firmly believe or was convinced about myself. So without with that caveat, I think over the last, you know, I mean, but the first khutbah I gave was 23, 24 26, 26, wow, subhanAllah, no, couldn't be, yeah, 26 years ago, subhanAllah. So I have been lecturing and preaching and teaching for almost three decades, and I'm, I'm, I'm almost 45 now. You know, my first khutbah was 16, like, so do the math there, you know. So my first lecture was 16, and I'm now almost, you know, 45 now. So for three decades, I have been teaching and preaching, and the internet came out, and I was already active. So what has that has done is it has recorded pretty much everything that I've done. And that's why you have the good and the bad, the positive, negative, all of it is out there. So as I evolve, the recording of my evolving also is there. And so people get a whole exposure to this. And I have evolved and I've been very public about uh, my own 
journeys out there. Um, I wish I could take an advanced group of students and, and bring them with me. Unfortunately, that's not always possible to do. I'll try to do the next best thing, which is to not go into as much detail as this topic deserves. I'll just say the following. Throughout my Medina years, I was very much committed to the Athari Creed and to overall the da'wah of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab, which I will call the Najdi da'wah. I don't mean anything derogatory, but we have to call it something. Let's call it the Najdi da'wah. Uh, I don't want to call it the term that its opponents call it because that is a derogatory term. But the Najdi Da'wah describes a geographic phenomenon. As you know, Mahin in particular and others, you know, I wrote books on this. I taught lectures on this, Kitab al-Tawheed, Kashr al-Shubuhat, Qawaid al-Arba'ah. Dare I say, to this day, nothing has been written in the English language that is more of an advanced defense of the Najdi Da'wah than my critical analysis of shit, which is still available in the English language. And I was genuinely sincere. But what I have discovered since then, and this is around a decade ago, and that's why I stopped teaching Light of Guidance, and Maghrib knows this, I stopped teaching, I said, I can't do this anymore, uh, is that I came to the realization that, uh, by the way, I'm writing an academic book about Salafism as well right now for an academic published, an academic book. So I'm doing a lot more research now than I did a decade ago. And to summarize, what I didn't know at the time was the following that the Najdi Da'wah can easily have, uh, can be viewed to have gone through three phases. You have the first phase, the original phase, which is the phase of Ibn Abdul Wahhab and his immediate sons and grandsons and the original you know, Da'wah that started. And that Da'wah, we'll get to there. The second phase is essentially King Abdul Aziz taming down the rebellion from within because most people are aware vaguely that there was a civil war almost in Saudi Arabia that King Abdul Aziz had to fight against his main allies who were defenders of Ibn Abdul Wahhab because their view was that we need to go and conquer the world like our ancestors did. We need to wage jihad on the entire Muslim Ummah and expand this, this, this thing called the Saudi Arabian Kingdom. What is a kingdom? What is a geographic land? We need to go and fight all these infidels around us, meaning the other Muslim lands, like our ancestors did. King Abdul Aziz tamed them down and a new strand developed. This strand is embodied by people like uh, Mufti Muhammad ibn Ibrahim, the, the Grand Mufti before Bin Bas. This is the second phase. The third phase is what we see now. And that is embodied by the famous scholars that most of us know. I have studied under some of them and we admire and respect them immensely. Let's call this the third phase of the Najdi Da'wah. Now the third phase is tamed down. The third phase has expunged much of the more radical elements of the first phase. right? And that was the phase I was introduced to, and I fell in love with it. And I felt this to be the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the meaning of la ilaha illallah. Coming out of that environment and studying on my own and reading, I realized that the first phase and the third phase are radically different from one another. And Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab has doctrines and ideologies that the third phase dissociates from. The third phase says, no, no, he didn't really say that. He couldn't have said that. There's this, this, this tension that the third phase has with the first phase. And you even see this in my book, A Critical Study of Shirk, where there are things that he says, and then I say in the bottom, oh, he couldn't actually have meant this. And that's what my teachers are teaching me. Don't take it at face value. I'll give you some simple examples. Ibn Abdul Wahhab fought decades of jihad in his lifetime. He and his group and army fought other people, conquered lands, expanded their lands under the name of jihad, not under the name of political war, under the name of jihad. 
Who was he fighting? He was fighting fellow Muslims. Who did he consider these people to be? Kuffar and infidels. He never once raised his sword against the British, against the Dutch, against any colonialist powers. His view was that the Ottoman Empire in its totality was a pagan empire. Dawla mushrika kafira. And that anybody who supported the Ottoman Empire ipso facto automatically became a murtad or a kafir. And in his view, therefore, anyone who supported the Ottomans against him, anyone, in fact, his famous 10 principles, Nawaqad al-Ashara, uh, one of them is very clear, Malam yukafir al-kafir, oh, shakka hatta fi kufri, right? Fahuwa kafir. Whoever doesn't consider the kafir to be a kafir, or doubts if the kafir is a kafir, that person is a kafir. Now, theoretically, that sounds technically correct. Who, did he, who does he mean when he says whoever doesn't consider a kafir to be a kafir or doubts whether that kafir is a kafir? He doesn't mean people that worship idols. He doesn't mean people that are, you know, uh, 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 followers of another faith tradition. He means the Ottoman Empire. He means the Muslims around him. Whoever considers these people not to be kafir is a kafir. Think about the repercussions. And that's why there are plenty of statements in his own writings where he indicates that the only group of people who are truly upon Tawheed are his followers. If you want to see what first wave Najdi Da'wah is, right? Have you heard of the book Millat Ibrahim by Abu Ibrahim al-Maqdisi, Abu Muhammad al-Maqdisi, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Abu Muhammad al-Maqdisi's book is essentially a modern manifestation of first wave Najdi theology. Have you heard of Abu Sa'ib al-Suri and other of these clerics of the more radical side of the fringe of the jihadist movements? These clerics, they tap in to the teachings of Ibn Abdul Wahhab and his notion of wala and bara. And that notion of wala and bara was basically, if you're with the Ottomans, and that means you're not with his group, then you are not just a deviant, you are a kafir. Now, whether he made takfir al-ayn or takfir al-wasf, that's a debate. But the point is, the default is you're not a Muslim. And that is why this ideology was considered to be deviant by everybody else in the world. You want to ask me what my position is? Listen to me carefully. And all refuters, please quote this. Quote this. I am a follower of Imam al-San'ani and Imam al-Shawkani in their verdicts on this person. Imam al-San'ani and Imam al-Shawkani are great scholars of Sunni Islam. And some of them initially got some positive views about Ibn Abdul Wahhab, and so they supported him. When they saw the reality, Ash-Shawkani, the great scholar of Yemen, a great allama, Ash-Shawkani wrote a letter to the uh, the king at the time, the second manifestation of the Saudi, the Saudi Empire. He wrote a letter to the king, the emir, and it was publicized that basically, I'm paraphrasing obviously, it's like, bro, chill, <laughs> that was his letter. Your group is taking things that might be bid'ah and making it into kufr, taking things that might be wrong and killing Muslims as a result of this. That was his basic message. And that's my message as well. I'm not saying, Billah, that we should go worship uh, yani, or pray to the grave. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not saying we make our dua to the dead. But I'm saying that what this individual did in waging jihad and considering the rest of the ummah to be kafir is essentially what ISIS is doing in our times. The same mentality of everybody's a kafir unless it's us. Let me quickly finish up. I know you guys have to interject your thing. The second wave tried to tone that down, and that's Muhammad Ibrahim, and he was much more hardcore. You read his fatawa, I have them literally behind me, his fatawa, you can read them. Very, and a great alim, but second wave. And then the third wave is toning that down even more and bringing it many notches down. 
I was introduced to third wave. Third wave gives you a lens. It gives you glasses to look at the first wave with. You don't really see the first wave the way that it was. How will you see the first wave the way that it was? Oh, advanced students of knowledge, this is my advice to you. Don't look at the writings of Ibn Abdul Wahhab without also looking at the history of what he did. Let his actions speak louder than later interpretations of his words. That's my message to the advanced students. I repeat, let his own actions, what he did to his fellow Muslims, the, how he justified attacking villages, how he viewed the Ottoman Empire and the entire Ummah as being outside the fold of Islam, even if there's Udr bil Jahl, but they're no longer Muslim. Why? Because of things that he considered to be Kufar Akbar, Shirk Akbar, and the majority of the Ummah did not consider it to be Kufar Akbar, Shirk Akbar. My point is as follows. The Najdi Da'wah took its basis in the Athari Creed, no doubt. But it is my contention and the contention of Ash-Shawkani and of As-Sanani and of many ulama, including many of the Hanbali ulama of the time frame, including some of the great Hanbalis of the city of Ahsa, such as their Sheikh, the great Alim Ibn Afaliq, uh, one of their greatest muftis, a great Hanbali scholar, scholar who was Athari in his creed. But he wrote a refutation of Imam Abdul Wahab, which again I have in my library and it's available online, uh, that he became a critic of Ibn Abdul Wahhab from the Athari strand, not from the uh, other strand of Islam. I'm actually writing an academic paper, which has been going on for many years, uh, the differences between Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Abdul Wahhab. And there are profound differences of them, the most important one. Ibn Taymiyyah did not make takfir of his opponents that did the same things that the opponents of Ibn Abdul Wahhab did, and he made takfir and made them halal at them. So, to respond to part one of your question, uh, I have to admit, I no longer consider myself to be a follower of Ibn Abdul Wahhab, uh, where I used to 15 years ago. But 10 years ago, around 10 years, or more than a decade ago, facts became clear to me that, uh, and I said, and the, the, the fault is my own, but I will say third wave Najdi Da'wah sanitizes first wave Najdi Da'wah. And that's why the average third wave Najdi Da'wah student is in denial. No, Ibn Abdul Wahhab didn't consider himself to be the only Muslim group in the world. Yes, he did. Go read his writings and look at what he did. Look at his level of understanding when he said, and this is quoted from his writings when he said, no one understood Tawheed, including any of my teachers, before I came along. This is what he himself says in his own writings. This is a level of fanaticism. And the takfir is a level of neo-kharijism that I simply cannot tolerate. To consider the entire ummah to be kafir and mushrik other than yourself is not mainstream Islam. And so I believe that I was uh, taught a version of his da'wah. That's third wave because third wave doesn't teach that, right? Third wave is much better than first wave. Third wave is still still kind of sort of, it's, 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 it's removed much of the fanaticism of the first wave because they have to. I mean, you can't live in the modern world. The second wave beginning tried to, right? King Abdul Aziz literally had to turn his secular troops against his religious troops. There was a civil war between the ulama, basically, and between the secular Badu followers, the Bedouin, Bedouin, Bedouin followers, that their loyalty is to the secular Abdul Aziz, not to the religious figure. There was a war. What was that war over? The war was over the interpretation of the Najdi Da'wah. And the first Najdi Da'wah basically was eliminated 
thus giving rise to the second Nazdi Da'wah. But even the second Nazdi Da'wah, it was still too fanatical for living in the modern world. And so by the 60s, that too had to be toned down immensely. Now we have the third. Dare I say we're witnessing a fourth wave if you look at the current Dine office, but I don't want to say too much because I do want to get a Saudi visa. So we move on to your next question. <laughs> Sheikh, uh, as a follow-up, um, going back, because would it be safe to say that you kind of built your brand on the works of Muhammad Ibn Abdul Wahab? Like, uh, in my 20s, yes. True. You know, so like, you know, so I would say there's certain, because, you know, you have your Kitab al-Tawheed series and the books that you alluded to. In my uh, 20s, yes. But definitely, definitely, even when I came back from Medina, uh, what I wanted to do at that stage in my early 30s, what I wanted to do was to spread a more uh, modern understanding of the Athari uh, creed, right? And at that stage, I'm talking about my early 30s now, now in my mid-40s, my early 30s, at that stage, I was still under the presumption that Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Abdul Wahhab represent the same trend. Whereas now, I differentiate between the two. And I don't view Ibn Abdul Wahhab as being a faithful, he wanted to be, I mean, I'm not denying that. He tried, he thought maybe he was, I'm not denying that. But I think it is patently clear, and I'm currently writing an article about this, so I think it is very clear and all you need to do is look at the writings and look at the, the, the way that Ibn Taymiyyah treated his opponents, some of whom justified making dua to Allah, calling to the dead, right? Some of Ibn Taymiyyah's opponents, uh, read his book, Al-Istighatha al Al-Bakri, right? Al-Bakri is one of the scholars that said it's okay to make tawassud through the dead. Ibn Taymiyyah, read his book on that, cover to cover. And it's definitely harsh, but he never considered Bakri to be a kafir. Halal al-dam, go and execute him, wage jihad against him. So I'm not pro calling out to the dead. It's haram to call out to the dead. It is a stepping stone to shirk. It is an evil bid'ah. But to consider anybody who does that automatically to be committing kufr akbar, no, that's not correct. And that's a different, more detailed topic that uh, we can talk about later on. And that's the position that I argue is Ibn Taymiyyah's. Now, again, I know there's going to be advanced students from knowledge. They're going to jump into Ibn Taymiyyah's books, find quotations here and there. And I know these quotations. Astaghfirullah, I'm not trying to brag or boast, but I've spent 20 years of my life reading Ibn Abdul Wahhab and Ibn Taymiyyah. I know these two people, individuals, more than any other scholar of Islam because I read the writings right behind. I don't know how much you can see. All of that is Ibn Taymiyyah, all of that Abdul Wahhab. These are the people I, I studied intensely for years and years. And I know their writings, and I know there are phrases you will find that can be interpreted here and there. More importantly, look at their actions. How did Ibn Taymiyyah treat in his own lifetime the people who tried to justify some of these bid'ahs versus how did Ibn Abdul Wahhab deal with the entire world that was outside of his group of followers? Simple as that. What was your emotional state when you come across an epiphany about Muhammad Ibn Abdul Wahhab like 10 years ago? I'll be honest, I mean, uh, there's, there's no question, like 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 uh, Sim said, I mean, you do feel a sense of, of hurt and pain. And that's why I understand when some of the uh, younger neophytes, when they hear me speak and they are used to the old YQ, I totally sympathize with their pain. Wallahi, I do. It's it's understandable. I can't, a'udhu billah, be double-faced and pretend I'm somebody whom I'm not. When I taught you that 15 years ago, that's who I was. And I have, do I regret that phase? I mean... I wouldn't be here if it weren't for that face. So I don't know how, I mean, I'm no longer that. I, I had to go through my own evolution and 
I have no doubt 15 years from now, I'm going to continue learning more and fine tuning my views or maybe even radically changing. And when that happens, you'll hear me speak on that platform. Inshallah, my goal you- is that Allah Azza wa Jal always show us the truth as truth and make us of those who preach what we view as the truth. Whatever I can, I have said or done, I can honestly say that inshallah, I never said anything about the religion of Islam except that I genuinely felt it to be the truth. I never, ever catered a doctrine or a fatwa to please the masses and I seek refuge in Allah. Wallahi, I will happily lose all my quote-unquote followers and whatnot if they don't like what I have to say. I'm not going to shy away. And you've seen this in the recent controversies. Let people do whatever they want. I'm not going to shy away from telling them either I'll be quiet which is a valid perspective we can get to that why I'm not quiet or whatnot or I will speak what I believe is the truth I will never ever cater Islam to the masses from that do you still wear the purple kurta do you regret that at all Like what the heck? I do have a purple kurta still. What's okay. wrong with the purple kurta? No, no, nothing at all. I'm just wondering if has uh, if you, if you've dropped that as well, then then you really changed. Bro, I still eat only zabih meat. You heard that, Mahin? Huh? Yeah. Zabih meat still upon the haq, bro. Sheikh, <laughs> 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 I can't change that. That's clear in my opinion. Anyway, <laughs> I wanted to know. Um, so as a you know from our early classes with you in Al-Maghrib and whatnot and, and uh, discussions with you and, and interactions with your lectures and stuff. I've just through my own uh, reading, and I think even I, I think Mahin can also agree to this, that we've definitely uh, attained a much more um, nuanced understanding of what uh, what it means to be Athari and Ashari, right? And I can speak for myself that I feel like neither are correct i think uh, my own views are related to um them being useful for a specific application in how you want to frame your view towards the faith and i was wondering do you still have that kind do you have that kind of view as well or have, are you still would you still identify yourself as an athari i am athari as much as i am hanbali what do i mean by this Look, you cannot reinvent the wheel entirely. We have 14 centuries of tradition. You cannot ignore 14 centuries of tradition. You cannot just pretend as if you have no idea what happened since the time the Quran came down up until, you know, uh, 1441 or 1929, whatever year it were in. You can't do that. You have this massive, beautiful history and legacy that is between you and the actual revelation. So... I am Hanbali overall in my fiqh. But did Allah reveal the Hanbali madhab? Obviously not. Allah did not reveal the Hanbali madhab. Allah revealed the Quran. He sent a prophet. Ulama came. Theologians came. Sahaba came. Tabi'un came. Great ulama. And they looked at this and they said, oh, okay, what's fiqh? How do we do this? What's usul? And they extracted from this divine revelation, they extracted multiple systems. Right, And these multiple systems are great, alhamdulillah. And in the end of the day, really one person cannot reinvent the wheel in every single facet of Islam. So it makes no sense for the average Muslim to come after 14 centuries and say, I'm going to reject all the madhabs and quote-unquote go back to the Quran Sunnah, which was, as you know, the Salafi slogan of the 90s. We saw what that meant. It meant go back to Albani or Bin Baz. It didn't mean you can't go back to the Quran and Sunnah without the intermediary of human agency, right? So I am Hanbali to this day, meaning 
if I need to look up a quick issue of fiqh for my own life without having to research extensively, I'm going to turn to my Hanbali Madhab books, which are right there, and just quickly look it up and say, okay, khalas, this is my generic Madhab that I follow and I'm comfortable with. And I chose the Hanbali Madhab not not just because I, uh, yani, uh, I, I studied it you know, the most out of all of the Madhabs, but also because I found it to be uh, the most, uh, like there's always opinions that you can kind of find in between. So there's riwayat of the Ahmed, Imam Ahmed ibn Hamra, which is well known. So I chose it because I actually found it to be also conducive to me. But I'm not a diehard Hanbali. I have no problems once in a while saying, you know what, in this particular issue, yani the Hanbali Madhab, yani, uh, you know, I, I, I might not necessarily follow the Hanbali Madhab on this issue. So, this, that now, I, I've said this in the British interview, which I guess you didn't, um, you guys don't listen to because the, there's your competitors. I said it in <laughs> of a course. Of and I'll say it on your, your interview because you don't like your competitors' interviews. I said the Salafi da'wah, the Athari da'wah was really good in educating its followers that the madhabs were a human construct. The average Salafi very well understood, understood very well, that the madhabs are human constructs. They are not from Allah and His Messenger. And so, even if you're the Binba Salafi or the Albani Salafi, meaning the Madhab base, either you take one Madhab uh, and generally follow it or you reject all the Madhabs, you kind of sort of understood, look, these Madhabs are man-made and, you know, they're all good and they're trying to come closer to Allah and His Messenger, but they're not from Allah and His Messenger. I said the Salafis were great at doing that. However, the way that Salafis teach their followers about theology, academically, it's not sound. They teach their followers that their theology, which is essentially post-Najdi third wave, third wave Najdi da'wah, was the theology of the Sahaba. That's the understanding the average Salafi has. That the great Sahaba, the Tabi'un, they had the same understanding as we do after 14 centuries. And so they actually believe that essentially Allah revealed the Salafi theology. That's, I mean, they wouldn't say it that way, but they do kind of sort of uh, romanticize, I know even more than that. They 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 make it a shibboleth. They make it like something that is unchallenged. And this is where, again, I have to say, I, I, I'm not saying that's... Look, the average Muslim has to follow a madhab, right? So the average Muslim should be a Hanbali or an Athari, a Shafi'i, uh, sorry, Hanbali and an Athari, or a Shafi'i and an Ash'ari, no problem. But the advanced students of knowledge need to understand that all of these are ulama attempting to derive from the nusus. Even the Athari creed is something that slowly developed over time. Now that's something that is shocking to the Salafi to hear. And we do require an advanced class. And I know this one phrase is gonna bring about a gazillion refutations. They're gonna quote Fulan and Alan and Sheikh Qadat. Jazakallah khair, I appreciate that. But you're quoting from within the tradition to defend the tradition. Take, give me any group of students that are open-minded. Give me a semester with them, and I will prove to you beyond this. And I have students, by the way. I'm teaching at the Islamic Seminary, uh, and, and let's talk to them. I'm teaching at other places that are not online. Talk to them. I have advanced students. When you, with these students, you show them the clear development. You show them that a later scholar comes with something an earlier scholar rejected. I'll give you the most simplistic example, which... I know will generate a lot of controversy because people are not, are not aware and it's going to be a two-minute example. But Imam Ahmad and Imam Bukhari and their positions on the Quran. What Imam al-Bukhari said about the Quran that caused all the controversy that it did, right? If you know the story of Bukhari and what happened with Yahya al-Zuhali. Yahya al-Zuhali, Imam Yahya al-Zuhali was essentially defending the hardcore 
Imam Ahmed humble position. And Imam al-Bukhari is developing and fine-tuning and, and pushing it forward. And Imam al-Dhuhali is on the old school. No, we're not going to do that. It's what Imam Ahmed said. And he's quoting Imam Ahmed against Imam al-Bukhari. Whereas the both of them studied under Imam Ahmed, right? But Imam al-Bukhari is like, well, he, we got to three. And then ironically, Imam Bukhari's position becomes orthodoxy. What Imam al-Bukhari said eventually becomes. And we can give you so many other examples. Now, this topic deserves an entire series of lectures. And I do do that in the advanced circles. This should not be put on YouTube. So I don't want people to misunderstand me. I believe the Athari Creed, as manifested by great ulama from earliest of times, is a really beautiful creed. It's a simple creed. And by simple, I don't mean a pejorative. Some of our brothers, they're jumping on any word and reading in a negative. Brothers, medieval is not a pejorative. Medieval is a time frame. <laughs> I say classic, I say pre-modern, I say medieval. Astaghfirullah, but study English. The primary meaning of medieval is a time frame. A secondary meaning, which you have to read into, is a negative meaning. I agree with you. But the primary meaning of classical, pre-modern, modern, and medieval are time frames. So when I say the classical ulama, that's not a negative. When I say the medieval, it's not a negative. It's simply a time frame. There's a classical, the first two, 300. You have the medieval, the next 400. You have the pre-modern, then you have the modern, the four primary uh, epochs. Now, I was saying the Athari Creed is definitely the first and the earliest developed Sunni creed. It predates the Ash'ari Creed by around 100 years. No question about it. But the Athari Creed in its totality does not go back to the Sahaba themselves. The Sahaba did not think about these issues the way that a hundred years later people thought about them. To presume that they held the same doctrines as Imam Ahmad did is a presumption. It is something you read in based on an ambiguous quote. We do not know what the Sahaba actually felt about many issues. We don't know because those questions were not posed to them. And so I don't have a problem at all with the Athari Creed. I am the default is I'm Athari still. And I and it is my area, the, the one area I can genuinely say that I am, inshallah, a world-class researcher because I spent 10 years, my master's, my PhD is early Sunni theology. That's what I did. I read, no exaggeration, hundreds of articles and books and whatnot. That's my expertise. My master's dissertation, go read it in Medina. My PhD dissertation, go read it. Uh, my first chapter of 100 pages is about the development of the Ash'ari school and its relationship with the Athari school. That's my 100 pages in English about this development. I know that phase inside out. And that was when I began thinking things through. And again, this slur I went to Yale, that's such a cheap slur. Bro, I have a brain. I can think, I can read. And it's what I'm doing. I'm reading. I'm thinking. I knew more than my teachers at Yale about any topic of Islam. They did it. But they're simply there and we're talking and whatnot. And I'm the one thinking. I'm the one coming to these conclusions, not them. My conclusions are different than their conclusions because I'm thinking things through. What I have, you have, you can read this in the book, uh, in, the, in the dissertation, which is not in print, but a lot of people um, have the PDF for some reason. You, you can read this there. And that is that the Ash'ari school and the Athari school they did have some tensions going on between them. But these tensions are contemporaneous. Imam Ahmed is there and the proto-Ash'ari school is already developing. What gives us the right to privilege Imam Ahmed over the other school is because of our personal bias and love towards Imam Ahmed. The, the, the point being, Athadism and Ash'arism are both developments of the second, third, fourth century of Islam. I still say Athadism 
predate Ash'aris by a generation or two. And I have to go into a little bit of a dig here, fellow Ash'ari students. I'm not saying this as a somebody who used to be Athari, but it's not fair when you neglect and ignore the many dozens of Athari creeds that were written before Abu Hassan al-Ash'ari was even born. It's not correct when you say that the majority of the Ummah was Ash'ari. No, the majority of the Ummah for 150 years was Athari in terms of theology. Then Ash'ari creed came along, and my dissertation discusses this actually, that how the Ash'ari creed supplanted the Athari creed was an act of politics. But when you read all of this, and you study it to that level, you realize, you know what? Allah didn't reveal the Athari creed or Akhidah Tahawiyah or Imam Ahmad's theology, and he didn't reveal Abu Hassan al-Ash'ari. These are people that are trying to extract from the revelation advanced aspects of theology that the revelation can be interpreted either way for. The bottom line, and Allah knows what's going to happen with this five minutes that I've just said. <laughs> May Allah protect me and you and all of us. And brothers, please calm down. Even if you want to refute, yeah, please. We're all Muslims praying to Allah, reading the Quran, loving the Quran, loving the Sunnah. And subhanAllah, even my worst critics out there, as long as you're within the mainstream of Islam, inshallah, we'll be together in Jannah forever and ever and ever if Allah forgives my sins and yours. So why all this animosity and hatred? We'll be together in Jannah. My my my, my talk here is not meant to the hardcore Salafis or hardcore Ash'aris or hardcore anybody's. Be easygoing and understand these are human developments. To conclude this question, bro, I am a Thari insofar as I'm Hanbali. But Atharism is not divinely revealed. And 15 years ago, I was Athari and I felt Ash'aris were deviants. You know this, Mahin, I taught you this 15 years ago, right? Correct. 15 years ago, I thought the Maturidis and whatnot were bad people, even if Allah will forgive them and whatnot. That's gone from my heart completely. Atharis and Ash'aris, in my humble opinion, SubhanAllah, <laughs> these two groups have been around for a thousand plus years. Look at them. You find amongst them righteous, zahid, ubad, muttaqi. You find amongst them so-so mediocre. You find amongst them fasaqa and fajara. The creeds themselves have not perversely or positively immediately impacted all of their followings. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying here? The right. creeds themselves are there, and the followers of both of these creeds generally are on the same spectrum of religiosity. Some are great, some are this, some are average, some are whatnot. So to consider these advanced doctrines of creed to be so important, so much so that you look down in your heart, even if you don't say so, at a Muslim who has a different interpretation, I believe this is the problem. But just like I don't look down at the Shafi'i, at the Maliki, at the Hanafi, at all, even if I myself am predominantly Hanbali, similarly, my heart has nothing negative and evil now against somebody who's an Ash'ari or a Maturidi or a Tablighi or a Diobandi or a, 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 a Jamati or a Ikhwani. All of these groups have good in them, all of them. And they might have some bad as well. None of them are revelations from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and all of them are attempts to bring about good in the Ummah. That's what I look at. That's my current attitude. By well, the way, this has post-Salafism by modern researchers, and there's an element of truth to that, post-Salafism. So, uh, so it's interesting you mentioned that, because when I re-watch your lectures um, in recent years, it seems that you have adopted certain elements of Ashari um, thought, uh, and let me be more specific related to that, because in as we know that 
the Ashari belief system works from a ground level, uh, a substrate of um, you coming to the belief in a creator and so on and so forth, right? It seems like because of your um, experiences at Yale, your interactions with struggling with with belief, you you kind of went down that path as well, where you had to reevaluate what your underpinnings were uh, in relation to your faith, and then kind of uh, build your faith again. And I'm not saying that you lost your faith. I'm just saying, like, kind of uh, cementing your faith, and um, you know, really. I would really? disagree with that analysis. Uh, okay. Analysis. Firstly, Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah, I can thank Allah. That's uh, a blessing from Allah. I never, ever in my life doubted Islam. Never. I never doubted the Quran. Alhamdulillah. I memorized the Quran as a young teenager, and I've been, Alhamdulillah, reciting it regularly. And there is just no doubt in my mind. This is yaqeen. It runs through every fiber of my soul that the Quran cannot be from a human being. And I knew this even before I understood the Quran. How about now when I understand the Quran? The Quran is divine. I never had any doubt. The video that people referred to, which was the video I gave at some, was a Singapore someplace where uh, doubts at Yale, and again, my critics jump on this and whatnot. This was doubts about the human construct of Salafism and atheism, Not about Islam, Billah. I never, ever doubted Islam. The doubts I had, when I entered Yale, I was very much certain that Ibn Abdul Wahhab and Ibn Taymiyyah represented the same school, part one. And part two, I too believed that you back project Athari creed onto the Sahaba. So there's a continuous unbroken chain, completely as it is. The Sahaba were exactly like us all the way down to this, right? And that's a very simplistic notion. That's like the average Hanafi thinks that, oh, uh, Ibn Mas'ud was a Hanafi. You know, that's what he believes, right? That's in his mind. He goes, that this is a very simplistic notion. And the, the development is taken out. What, what, when I, going to Yale is considered a slur by this group. They sound a little like the far right when they, when they just education. No, going to Yale simply allowed me to explore on my own. My teachers didn't even know these topics. I didn't discuss it with them. It just gave me the opportunity to be away from, uh, it's called groupthink. When you're surrounded by everybody who says the same thing, who says, who believes the same thing, you're... You, you automatically are just, you know, put into these intellectual bubbles. Like you're not going to be able to. So going to Yale, I'm doing my reading. I'm doing my research. And it's my own ideology. My dissertation has nothing to do with, with these things. So I never went through that. Please be careful when you say this, going through doubts. I never doubted Islam or the Quran or Allah and his messenger. What doubts I had were about Najdi Creed. <laughs> and that is now clear what I believe. And the Athari Creed being unchanged. And now that's clear what I believe, that the Athari Creed has undergone change. Just, that's my doubt. Yeah. Well, uh, about, go ahead. Let me, your point about uh, uh, sympathizing with, with Ash'ari methodology, I think you, look, I have nothing against Ash'ari methodology, as you understand. But I am still, and, and that's why I'm still Athari per se. Like most questions of Creed, if you ask me, the answer I would give you from my own heart would be, from the Athari paradigm. I am firmly, firmly a believer in the concept of fitrah, proving the existence of God. This is an Athari paradigm, right? It's the Ash'aris and the Mu'tazilites who say the first obligation is to rationally prove the existence of God. No, I don't believe that. The first obligation is the worship of Allah. The fitrah proves the existence of Allah. This is primarily the Athari creed. But here's the point. We are now in an environment 
and amongst groups of people whose faith is being shaken, whose iman is being rocked to the core. And in that group of people, yes, it is logical to begin with proving the veracity of the faith. And this is something Ibn Taymiyyah himself uh, explicitly said. So I would politely disagree, not because I have anything against the Ash'aris, I don't, but because this is still an Ibn Taymiyyah paradigm, that amongst those groups who don't firmly believe in the faith, you do have to take a step back and kind of prove the, the veracity of the faith. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. And I think, I think one of the reasons why um, I feel after my my own evolution through um, the Salafi phase and things like that, I gained a such a, an appreciation for how the Ashari um, methodology is, is that uh, in, in this day and age where, you know, you were, you were talking in some of your lectures about young people struggling with um, different facets of people challenging your faith or different ways of, of, um, coming to the belief in the creator and so on, I found that the Ashari faith or the their approach is much more, could be much more conducive in this type of environment, in, in the age of science and, and reason. and. Um, I don't have a problem with what you said. That's okay. very true. Problem. And again, like I said, unfortunately, the Atharis and Ashari's were at each other's metaphorical throats for seven, eight hundred years. And I think in the process, not much was accomplished. A lot of hatred and animosity for not much benefit to the ummah. And whatever, okay, so let's not even talk about them. And I say this very clearly. Maybe if I had been alive in 7th century Damascus, I would have done what Ibn Taymiyyah did and, and been very anti-Sufi and Ashari, maybe. But I am a firm believer, after having read hundreds of of treatises and and, and, and and pages of Ibn Taymiyyah, thousands of pages of Ibn Taymiyyah, I'm a firm believer, and I hope I don't come across as arrogant, but I am a firm believer that if, if Ibn Taymiyyah had been alive today, he would be a very different Ibn Taymiyyah than he was 700 years ago. And I have said this before, his followers, those that look up to him, they're stuck in that time frame. They're completely, they, they are not truly following Ibn Taymiyyah. They're simply reading and copying and pasting. If Ibn Taymiyyah had been alive today, he would be somebody who is very controversial. He would be rocking the Athari boat like he did 700 years ago. He would be speaking in a language and saying things that his fellow Atharis like back then didn't understand. And he would be doing this because that is what the religion of Islam dictates us to do. He would not be talking about creed of those issues, Asma'u Sifat, as much as he would be talking about issues that are concerning our Ummah. The reason why he concerned himself with those issues is because those were the challenges of those days. So I'm not at all critical of Ibn Taymiyyah doing what he did 700 years ago, but I am very critical of his followers and also of Imam al-Ghazali's followers taking their respective mashayikh and copying and pasting them and then re-following the battles that they had between one another or against one another. That's just a waste of time. Nobody benefits we need to move on from this controversies of 800 years ago. Uh, so, uh, Sheikh, the the whole idea, I think, of when you talked about how people have a simplistic understanding of their their religion, like, oh, we believe what the companions believe, etc. And now you're coming out and challenging them that there is development. I think a lot of people, like, it makes them uncomfortable. And I think that's why you get the reaction you get, especially some people when they convert from another religion. 
because they think, oh, Christianity has this evolving creed with Nicaea and these councils, and Islam never had that, right? Uh, do you think? Do you think there's weight to that? that that's my perception. Yeah, I think people the idea, this... yeah, the idea that uh, you're playing into the hands of this um, reformist movements by um, reevaluating things. How, what do you feel about that? Do you feel like some of your language could be kind of used by these elements uh, in our communities in the West? So uh, I understand the visceral emotional reaction by many of my critics is because of the fear of progressive Islam. And I am sympathetic to that. And I've always been a critic of progressive Islam from 20 years ago. To, that's one thing I haven't changed, by the way. <laughs> that hasn't changed. <laughs> I, that might change. There's, a, there's a great video of you and uh, Linda Sarsour being interviewed by some, was it Mehdi Hassan, I think. And the, some of the faces you make when some of the topics are mentioned are just classic. We, we kind of shared them in a WhatsApp group once. It's like I progressive Islam to me is intellectually bankrupt. Really, I, I don't like being harsh, but it really is because progressive Islam is not bringing anything Islamic to the table. Whatever is the flavor of the month, they want to read into the text. And that's it's a sense of, of bankruptcy. Like, what does Islam have to do with this then? I mean, just leave Islam and do whatever you want. I've never been a fan of progressive Islam, and I can't see myself going that way. I, I, the Quran and Sunnah are our sources. That's, that's the whole point of us being Muslim. Does this mean that somebody who interpreted the Quran and Sunnah 200 years ago, that interpretation is binding on me? I think this is the point here, right? What if that somebody was Ibn Taymiyyah? I, I love Ibn Taymiyyah. I admire him. Nobody in the Ummah I admire after the Sahaba more than Ibn Taymiyyah, right? Nobody in the Ummah. That's still the case. But Ibn Taymiyyah is not a prophet. He is not one whom Allah sent. Now, Salafis say that. I challenge Salafis to actually find something that they disagree with Ibn Taymiyyah about. Whereas I do disagree with the person I look up to immensely. And I think he would actually want that from his students, right? I do not agree with some aspects of Ibn Taymiyyah. It's a bit advanced right now, but I actually genuinely disagree with some things. And my admiration does not become fawning, you know, like uh, subsequent completely, uh, you know, uh, uh, following everything that he says. I actually disagree with him. Now, your perception that challenging the understanding of a group of scholars is tantamount to progressive Islam maybe from the perspective of somebody who hasn't really been exposed or studied that much, I can see. But I'm not challenging the Quran and Sunnah. I'm challenging the interpretations of some ulama hundreds of years after the Quran and Sunnah era. That's a big difference between the two. And even as I challenge, if you listen to my methodology, inshallah, I know my Sunni methodology. I have not rejected Sunni methodology. The Quran, the Sunnah, Ijma'ah. You know, all of this is there. And so I, I would disagree with this. It's a matter of it's a matter of levels of interpretation. Our Salafi brethren are very comfortable being essentially of a group mindset. If that's what their version of Islam says, that must be the haq. Anybody who wants to even fine-tune or push for change, even within Sunni usul it kind of sends them into a panic. And they're like, oh my God, this guy must be a deviant. They're off the manage, PDF files, you know, going against the Ijma'a or the Salaf. I wish I could speak to those who are students of knowledge and interested. I don't want 
to cause any problem amongst, amongst those who don't need to hear this stuff. But I can't help it when the internet and YouTube has allowed access to everyone, number one. Number two, I guess I'm jumping the gun, but the controversy will come up. My goal is to protect the faith of the next generation, not to cause damage. Now, I understand some of what I say, I understand, will cause doubt to some groups of people. That's not my goal. And I wish that they didn't have to listen to me. And I say again, I'm not asking anybody to listen to me if you feel that I'm doubtful or, 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 or not helpful to your iman. Please quote me on this. If you feel that I'm giving you any problems or issues, stop listening to me. That's not who my audience is. My audience is those Muslims who want to connect with Allah and His Messenger, and they find in my talk that which allows them to connect with Allah and His Messenger. That's my audience. They're not your hardcore Salafis or, or Deobandis or Tablighis or whatnot. They're all good people. They will all, inshallah, go to Jannah if they pray and fast and avoid the major sins. And despite all your hatred and refutation, I hope that Allah forgives me and we are there together. I'll say it again. So no problem. That's not my audience. You have a paradigm. You have a group of people that are group think that are happy with you. Go for it. No problem. I'm not wanting to challenge your average Deobandi, your average Salafi, your average you know, Ghazali and Sufi. Good for you. You're all good Muslims. But what do I do? When I meet somebody who's genuinely struggling with Islam, who has doubts, and here's a point, I'm jumping the gun here. A lot of my critics are surrounded by groupthink people. And they're like, why are you talking about this? You're rocking our boat. And what they don't understand with my utmost love to them, I'm not on your boat, bro. I'm not on your boat. I'm in a different world, a different, different land, different peoples. The people that come to me, the, the emails that I get, the, 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 the responses from my videos amongst the large group of people is very different than your mashallah masjid going Salafis or the Obandis or whoever you are. I'm not interested in rocking your world. You stick with your world, stick with your ulama. I'm not asking you to listen to me at all. Jazakallah khair, you're already upon one version of the truth and it's good. So this whole notion of me rocking their world, bro, I'm not even addressing you. You keep to your world, you stick with your boat, good for you. But I have an audience far different than your audience. And you're not even willing to admit that that audience exists. You dismiss the fact that there are Muslims struggling with faith. You don't even know after that video of Ya'ajuj and Ma'ajuj, by the way, I know you're going to come to it. Yeah, I we're, was we're going to break and go ahead and finish your <coughs> Emails and comments of a very positive nature. Like, okay, it's not the only issue that's troubling, troubling people. But what I did was I attempted to set up a paradigm. See, that's the point. It's not just this one issue. It is the usul. It is sympathizing. Look, bro, I see where you're coming from. And I understand that this and other issues is causing you some issues. So let's see what we can do. Right. And my perspective was that this is an issue that is one of the many topics that a group of people is struggling with. Let's see what we can do to help them come to terms with this. And the people that I interact with, by and large, receive this very positively. Obviously, those that have never heard of this interpretation, and they didn't even know the teacher of the teacher said this, because again, they're living in their groupthink world. They're just very happy replicating and copying, pasting, whatever they're taught, it becomes what they think is ijma. And they haven't even read 10 books beyond their circle to know what ijma is outside of their circle. So those that haven't read it, I understand to them, this is cataclysmic. It's as if the wall has been broken, pun intended. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 you know, uh, I can say more puns, but let's, let's take those puns out of a bit. 
I understand, and wallahi, had I been 20 years old and also surrounded by my mashayikh I look up to and, and, and fully immersed in that world, I too would say, man, what is this guy doing? But I'm no longer living in a masjid in Riyadh or in Urnaza with Sheikh Urnathimi like I was for so many months. I'm no longer there. I'm now interacting with a very different group of people. People have literally come up to me and said, Sheikh, I doubt Islam because of da 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 da. Sheikh, can you please explain to me how we as Muslims can reconcile da da da? And they list for me. And one of the topics that has come up many times, not the number one on the list, but it is definitely there, is yet Jujama. And, and Rath- well, Sheikh, I, I know you want to break because you need to pray Salah. So I'm just going to remind you now that we hit the one hour mark. And okay. we, we can continue this discussion in part two of the video. And that we're going to release uh, along with this video. So let's go ahead. Yeah, because this, this can really break off into a very large subject and, uh, you know, take up several minutes. Um, so this, this concludes uh, the first half of the discussion with Sheikh Yasser uh, Khadi. What he just concluded with is something that the Madam Luke's has been uh, a central mission of ours so that, you know, we get out of this groupthink mentality that we are able to create a platform where many people with many different ideas within our framework of, of faith, you know, we not everyone deserves a platform, but people who are uh, within our f- framework of understanding of Sunni Islam do deserve that and we hope that we have many more discussions to come with many other people who uh, wish to challenge each other on different things. Jazakallah khair and uh, please go ahead and check out part two of this interview with Sheikh Yasser Khab. Um Sheikh, uh, we were talking um, in part in, in the earlier part of the conversation about um, your kind of evolution a lot of the folks, um, you know, when you, I remember when you first started with Al-Maghrib, one of the pushbacks that we got from the tra- from the traditional Sufi crowd back was that, oh, Sheikh Yasser disrespects, uh, the, the, you know, our ulama and whatnot. And I think it comes back to, I remember there was a statement about, um, there was a famous uh, scholar, I think he lived in Mecca, right? Sayyid Muhammad Alawi al-Maliki, um, very revered by the traditional camp that you accused him of uh, committing blatant shirk, so to speak. Um, can you talk about that? Uh... Uh, so I think this is symptomatic exactly of what I'm saying of some of the potential problems, even of third wave Najdi Da'wah. So I said the first wave was definitely hardcore, definitely uh, very much like the modern you know, um, extremist groups that we have. And it is my presumption, as I said, that Abu Muhammad al-Makhdisi is essentially reviving in the modern times first wave Najdi Da'wah. But even third wave Najdi Da'wah is problematic insofar as it does preach that anybody who calls out to the dead is committing major shirk and kufr. And that is, pro- what do you do when you have somebody like Alawi al-Maliki, Allah who was the greatest scholar of the other camp, who said, no, it's not shirk to ask the need for, and he's using tawassul al-zaghat, the same standard points going back 800 years. Now, here's the irony. 2005 was when this controversy happened. I was straight out of Medina by three months. Uh, and uh, Sheikh Alawi Maliki, Allah was the greatest alim of that strand of Islam. Highly respected, greatly revered. Now, I studied with teachers who in front of my own ears, they called him, he is the caller to paganism in our times. 
some of the great, and because I respect those ulama, some of them were the grand muftis and whatnot, I'm not going to even mention their names explicitly, out of respect to them. Some of the greatest ulama of the late 80s, early 90s of the Salafi da'wah had him banned from preaching and teaching. One of them spoke to the king, King Fahad, uh, at the time, and I know this because his students told me from when I was sympathetic to that strand, this isn't an enemy telling me, to see if he could be put on trial for heresy to the level of execution because he's calling for the worship of other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. One of our, I'm, I'm out of respect, I'm not mentioning that name, but it is well known to those who know. Uh, many of our ulama of the of the Najdi, third wave, when I was a part of that movement, third wave Najdi da'wah, wrote treatises and pamphlets with extremely harsh adjectives. He is, one of them said, he is the Amr ibn Luhay of our times. Amr ibn Luhay was the one who began idolatry in uh, pre-Islamic Arabia. Very harsh terminology. I come along, third wave Najdi da'wah, fresh off of the Medina paradigm, and Alawi Maliki dies, and I quoted one of the mildest statements that I knew my Mashaykh to say about. One of the mildest things. And he was a deviant to call her to, you know, worshipping other than Allah. This is very, very gentle compared to what the giants of third wave Najdi Da'wah have said. And if you don't believe me, go back and look up what they said about this individual. And I watered it down and I quoted it in English. And uh, what happened, happened. And it mired a Maghrib in controversy. I was attacked. And at the time, I defended myself because I was third wave Najdi Da'wah. Now, I unabashedly say, I ask Allah's forgiveness. I ask Allah to forgive me for quoting my teachers about this individual, even if I disagree with some of the aspects of what he taught. He represents a strand of Islam that goes back 800 years. And it has amongst its luminaries great ulama like, uh, uh, like uh, Ibn Hajar al-Haythami and others who are essentially arguing the same thing that this individual is arguing, even if I disagree. There is no need for this harsh terminology of pseudo-takfir and almost bid'ah and shirk and kufr. Look, he has his views. They go back. I have my views. And I still don't agree with Alawi al-Maliki's uh, finer positions. But you know what? In my heart, I genuinely do not have any hatred of him. And I don't view him as being a caller to paganism. A'udhu billah, a'udhu billah. He's a Muslim alim who represents a tradition that considers himself to be following Ghazali and whatnot, and you're going to say that he's the Amr ibn Luhay of our times? I'm sorry. This is third wave Najdi Da'wah. If you're uncomfortable by calling him Amr ibn Luhay, then you are uncomfortable with some of the main figures of third wave Najdi Da'wah out of respect to them. And I studied with them. I'm not going to mention their names, but you all know their names if you know third wave Najdi Da'wah. So I am no longer that person. I ask Allah's forgiveness, and then I apologize to anybody who was offended. My only excuse, and this is not an excuse, but it's simply I was groupthink at the time, and I was following what my teachers explicitly taught me, explicitly, and I saw with my own eyes the hatred that they had when they when they spoke against this person. Before we move on to the topic that you want to say, I want to conclude this first phase by saying, uh, this first interview uh, part of it, by saying something very explicitly. Listen, every average Muslim needs to follow a madhab and needs to follow a creed. You can't reinvent the wheel. No problem being an Athari, no problem being a Hanbali, no problem being an Ash'ari, no problem being a, a, a Shafi'i, no problem. Whatever you do, be happy with what you're doing of the mainstream Islam and don't look down at the other groups. 
Be what you are, no problem. I am still to this day overall athari and hanbali, right? So no problem. But the problem comes when you genuinely view these other strands as being batil or away from the haqq or enemies of Allah and His Messenger or even misguided. I do not view mainstream Ghazalian Islam to be misguided. I might still disagree with it in my personal life, but misguidance is a big term. Bid'a and badala are big terms, and this is where I disagree. Even if I'm athari to this day, the Ghazalian strand or the uh, the, the um, uh, uh, other mainstream Islams. Now, what is mainstream Islam? Hadith Jibreel. If you believe in the six artan, and if you pray and fast and whatnot, this is mainstream Sunnism. If you view the Quran and Sunnah as being your primary sources, if you respect the Sahaba as being figures of, of taqwa and virtue, Alhamdulillah. Uh, with final point, I'll conclude. Allah will not punish somebody for being an Ash'ari or a Sufi or a Salafi, nor will a person enter Jannah by these creeds. Reward and punishment comes from Iman and Taqwa and Tazkiyah. This is what Allah says in the Quran. The Mu'min, the Muttaqi, Qad aflaha man zakaha. And Tazkiyah is found in the Salafi, it is also found in the Sufi. It is found in the Deobandi, it is found in the Tablighi. It is found in the Ikhwani, it is found in the Jamaati. It is found in the average Muslim who doesn't have anything to do with this firaq. These advanced concepts in and of themselves will not push you forward into Jannah, nor will they save you from Jahannam. What will save you is your genuine, raw, uncategorized Iman and Taqwa, where you worship Allah Azza wa Jal and you want to come closer to him, whether you're following this strand or that strand, they're all mainstream interpretations. And even if I have a personal preference, the other ones are not Jahannami oriented. They're not evil and bad and mubin. There's give and take room to breathe. And with that, inshallah, we move to your second phase of conversation. I, actually do, I, I, I do want to have one quick follow up. Being that you were there during his lifetime, do you have regrets that you never benefited from him? Yes, definitely. I wish I had met him. No doubt. I wish I had met him. I wish that I had uh, just interacted with him. I never did. And there were famous ulama in Medina who were of the same school that I was warned against. Don't go to these people. Uh, they're going to you know, brainwash you. SubhanAllah. <laughs> I was that person that if your teacher says something you know, and anybody says something else, you're going to warn against them. Just like my critics are now warning against me. I was that person, which is why I understand. كَذَلِكَ كُنْتُ مِنْ قَبْلُ فَمَنَّ اللَّهُ عَلَيْكُمْ 20 years ago, I was that kid, that overzealous. If you go against my teachers, you're PDF files. And if I had video back then, I would have probably released a video application. Alhamdulillah, Allah allowed many of us to move on intellectually. But I have regrets. And of those regrets, and you know, my somebody's asked me, I think in a previous interview, who is the main person who's alive that you really look up to, genuinely consider to be a Shaykh al-Islam of our times, like the true person? And uh, it's awkward to say this because obviously you know, nobody knows the future. Maybe the person I look up to might, might change. We ask Allah for thabat. But my mentor genuinely that I really look up to who's still alive is Sheikh Salman al-Awdah. May Allah Azza wa Jal release him from the, the tyranny that he is uh, undergoing now. We had a son on the show. The what? We had a son on the show. MashaAllah, oh, I did yeah. not even know that. Yes. So Sheikh Salman al-Awdah is essentially one of the people who put this kernel in my head of who I am now. These ideas that I have now, 
one of the first people to meet that I met, this is again, 1999 or two, I went to his house when you weren't supposed to go to his house, you know, uh, we went surreptitiously, secretly, you know, we're not supposed to tell anybody or else the madakhila will drive us crazy and whatnot. But we went, we drove all the way to, to, to Qasim, you know, to, when we were in, uh, I studied with Ibn Uthameen. So when we were there, we arranged a meeting and had a number of meetings. After that, we met in London. We had a number of conversations, uh, correspondence. And I genuinely, genuinely admire his evolution from who he was, you know, 30 years ago. And I feel that his evolution is perfect for his people in place. And mine is for my people in place. And we are going on similar paths, but because of our cultures and peoples, we're going slightly different. But I feel in him, I shouldn't say kindred spirit, because he is way better in every sense than me. And may Allah protect him and whatnot. But I, I genuinely admire Sheikh Salman al-Awda as being someone who I can see went through this. Because he also, and I know for a fact, because I know much about him that is not public, because again, I'm in those circles. He also is no longer a Najdi or same thing with the Atari, the same things. And here's the irony. He didn't influence me directly. He didn't tell me, oh, Yasir, don't be a Najdi. No, it's just the, the, the conversations you have with him. They put something in your mind and you start thinking, 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 thinking. And you realize, you know what? It doesn't make sense anymore. It doesn't add up. And so that's the person I really consider to be very similar. And I'm not, when I say similar, I'm not comparing myself to him. He's Allama Alim. He's Sheikh Islam. And I am somebody who's a, a Tirmid. But in terms of evolution, I mean, Sheikh Salman al And Allah, may Allah yani, grant him sabbat and, and release him from what he is. I mean, I mean, Sheikh, <clears throat> so a lot of the discussion uh, lately has been uh, around, and many people have brought it up, you know, Mufti Abulayt and many other people who are trying to grapple many of the uh, situations or things that are described in the Quran as that are described as miracles. You recently talked about a little bit about the Ajuj Majuj and uh, whether or not that's a miracle or not, that uh, remains to be determined. But um, a lot of people are trying to reconcile scientific understanding uh, with, you know, their understanding of the world. I remember doing this when I was young, uh, 14, 15 years old, and people were asking me about Yunus al-Islam being swallowed by a whale. And then I went and I did my own research. This was when the internet was very new. And I found out that the blue whale can't even swallow a human being because it's it, the throat on the, the, the blue whale can't even accommodate a human being. And I found out like, well, wait, how is this uh, possible? You know, this is not from, at least from surface level reading of the Quran, it doesn't look like it's a miracle. It looks like it's uh, someone is being swallowed by a whale and living in there for, what, three days or whatever. Um, so uh, many people have tried to come up with answers related to it. Some people have completely dis, uh, disavowed or distanced themselves from actually recognizing uh, the miracles in the Quran, that they're all natural phenomenon, that these were all symbolic events that we are, you know, you know uh, we're given some kind of a, a story so that we can uh, recognize some, uh, some incredible events. Some people have, uh, sorry to say, you know, do not recognize the virginity of, of Maryam Islam. So I wanted your thoughts on um, thing because this, this plays into your, your recent issue or something that uh, was made public regarding Yajuj and Majuj, how are you recommending people coming to terms with, with this phenomenon? Okay, firstly, this goes back to uh, 
know this is a very again deep topic so no problem that's exactly why uh you're interviewing me always i i i wish we had more time because the problem comes these ideas need to be developed and we always whatever i say five minutes ten minutes it's so easy to take these snippets and those in whose hearts there's a disease or they're just so ultra defensive they're going to find these 10 second snippets and, and, and run with them and Khair, what can be done? I always um, am cognizant of this, uh, that we see the problem in this regard. To take a step back, realize that uh, the issue of reconciling uh, what the Quran says with, call it logic, call it reason, call it science, whatever you want to call it, this is a question that does go back for millennia. It goes back to the beginning of Islam. And there have been, from the earliest of times, strands that have grappled with this, uh, Sunnism, which is the strand I very much am a part of, I hope nobody kicks me out of Sunnism, inshallah, at least, even though some people want to do that, but Sunnism has taken the uh, the stance, which is a very clear stance, that look, there's something called miracles, and these miracles are breaks in the natural order of things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does for specific reasons and purposes. The philosophers, the Mu'tazila, many times they denied many of these miracles. And so anybody who wishes to do that my gentle advice is stop calling yourself a Sunni and go and join those movements and say you're a modern Mu'tazilite and then things would be so much easier. The problem comes when you insist, see, I've, I've said I'm no longer a Najdi. So when the Najdi say, oh, he's not a Salafi, well, Jazakallah khair, but I'll tell you that I'm not your version of Salafism. I'm not, you know. I still think I'm an Athari overall, but I understand if an Athari person wants to kick me off because of what I said. I understand where they're coming from. I consider myself still to be overall Athari Alhamdulillah, but what not. My point is, if you're going to deny miracles, you're not Sunni anymore. So then save us the hassle and just say, you're a Mu'tazilite, and we understand where you're coming from. I firmly believe in miracles, and I believe in miracles because the Qur'an is explicit, and it tells us of miracles from the beginning of time up until the end of time. Life is a miracle. The one who created life is able to resurrect the dead birds of Ibrahim, is able to split the, 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 the Red Sea, is able to do a, a million things that yani, Allah Azza wa does that are atypical from natural things. So I don't have any problem with miracles, uh, and no Sunni should. Uh, the issue comes when it comes to to Ya'juj yeah, and Ma'juj uh, is who said it's a miracle? To claim that it is ghaibi and to claim that this is something that is of the miracles of the Akhirah is actually a modern bid'ah. The classical ulama and the medieval ones, and I don't mean anything derogatory, Mr. Whoever you are, medieval is an English word. Look it up. Classical, medieval, pre-modern, modern. There's nothing negative, nothing pejorative. And if and and if medieval, by the way, by the way, if medieval had been primarily a negative meaning, I wouldn't use it. But its primary meaning, and look it up, is an epoch, it's an era. There's classical, and I, what else do you want me to say? I'm using a description, and the context is very clear. I'm sorry to be blunt here, but I have to say anybody who listened to my lecture and then accused me of making fun of the scholars of Islam either doesn't speak English or there's a disease in his or her heart. It's impossible to take away that I'm dismissing this and making fun of the scholars of Islam. I've never done that in my life. But our classical and medieval scholars, when they talked about Ya'juj and Ma'juj, they viewed them as being physical realities. They literally thought, to go read Ibn Kathir and others, they literally thought that in a land far, far, far away, there's an actual wall behind which there are many, many people living uh, until uh, until it's going to break. Now, 
the claim that, okay, maybe they're under the ocean. Maybe they're under the ground. Maybe the, these are just as bid'i interpretations as my critics are accusing me of having. The classical scholars didn't say that. But, and the claim that belief in Ya'juj and Ma'juj currently existing is an article of faith is itself also a bid'ah. You don't find it in the classical books. So here's the irony. They are so wed to the tradition that they make a part of the tradition what is not the tradition. And they convert something that was deemed to be a historic reality, they convert it to an article of faith simply because they have never considered a possible alternative. So the question is not whether Allah is capable of miracles or not. Of course Allah is capable of miracles. And the sun rising from the west is a far bigger miracle than a million people living behind a wall somewhere. But I affirm the sun rising from the west because the texts are unequivocal. Sheikh, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Um, just so we understand each other a little bit better, Yajuj and Majuj in the hadith that you can you probably know much better than I do, um, one of the sahabas, uh, the hadith goes along the lines of uh, how many people are entering hellfire and the sahaba panicked and they asked, well, why is it so many people are entering the fire? And the Prophet reassured them and said that majority, relaxed majority of them will be Yajuj and Majuj. Now, if we look at human history, we know at least in the past 10 to 20,000 years, there have been at least 100 billion human beings that existed on earth. Wait, where'd you get that number from, Sim? Um, I think I Googled it. 50 to no. 100. 50, 50 billion to 100 billion. I think that, that's a number. I can double check for you real quick. Right now, I'm on Google right now. Okay. Okay. Well, well go ahead. I, I love fact, fact checking. I will Google right now how many humans have ever lived. Right. Let's just see what Sheikh Google, what Sheikh sure. Google says. By the way, here's the question. What do you define humans as? That's the big question. Yeah. Homo sapiens, like actually us or what? That's the whole question here. Uh -huh. If you're talking about hominids, you're probably correct. Hominids. But well, hominids, hominids are different, as you as you know. See, we're getting a very, we're yeah, getting into yeah. evolution, which we don't want to do right now. Yeah, that's a whole another, you're going to get into another controversy. Well, but I'm, I'm fine with controversy. You can, you can no, go I, in there. I don't think in terms of Homo sapiens, what we would call Bani Adam, I don't think we were a hundred billion, Sim. That doesn't make sense. I'm you're you're going by what Google that said. That includes Neanderthals and all of these other species that we still have to figure out what they were or whatnot. But Allahu alam, I, I, uh, I don't. Popula Population Reference Bureau says a hundred and eight billion. Okay, so let's see here. Modern Homo sapiens, that is, people who were roughly like we are now, first walked the earth. Uh, about 50,000 years ago. Since then, more than 108 billion members of our species have been born. Now, this is, yeah, this is a website. I don't think, this is a, a secular website. I don't think they have any vested interest in oh, why. I could, yeah, yeah, that's fine. So, Sheikh Google is the fossil between us, and Sheikh Google has uh, validated your, 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 your decree. But I, I'll have to then, I don't remember this. So, story, okay. let's just right. assume it's... Uh, uh, now, when you try to reconcile that hadith with um, Yajuj and Majuj, and you try to understand that Yajuj and Majuj are far exceeding this number. Let, let me ask you this, uh, Sim. How many, how many Muslims are currently on earth, roughly? Roughly about a billion or so. 
give or give me a rough just one, a one point. Let's say one right now, one point two billion, right? Isn't that the give number? Me a rough, rough, rough ballpark estimate. How many Muslims since the time of the Prophet until Qiyamah? Just a rough ballpark. How many think are, are you going to be there? I would say probably 50, 20 billion. Uh, okay, twenty billion. Yeah. Twenty billion. You said? Okay. So the Hadith says for every one of you, there's going to be how many of them? I think um, nine of them. Nine? I, 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 no, no, ninety-nine. I can't remember. Ninety-nine. Mahin, how much? I have no idea. <laughs> I, like I, I, th I thought it was like nine hundred ninety-nine or ninety-nine. Uh, I I, 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 I'm not an expert in the Gog and Magog stuff. Oh, I love this stuff, <laughs> Sheikh. You know, I used to go on Google Earth and go on a hunting Easter egg hunting spree for that. <laughs> I was, yeah, you drive Google Earth. No, yeah, yeah. I went to uh, the old, like, I found, like, manuscripts or um, work that was done where works, things were translated by the Khulafa where they sent expeditions to Transoxania, where they went into, where they wanted to send expeditions to search for them. And I even went down some crazy rabbit holes trying to find out where they are. And I, my guess now is that they're in that region of Earth, the Caucasus area. Because it's uh, so mountainous and much of it's so unexplored. That's just my guess. But it could just be like Gears of War. Have you ever heard of a video game called Gears of War? They come out of the underneath. There's these uh, species who come out of uh, the earth and they attack the humans. Yeah. The modern critics of mine yeah. are willing to change the classical and medieval understanding. They say under the earth. Who said that before them? They say under the ocean. Who said that before them? They say they could be from the jinn world. First, that goes against the hadith. Who said that before them? They're willing to change a lot of things because they feel that this interpretation firstly becomes aqidah and it's not aqidah and secondly becomes ijma' and it's not ijma' and based on that, they're willing to renegotiate and I have attempted to, I gave two opinions. I said they're my opinions in the end of the day and when I do so, yeah, they react the way that they do, and to me... Well, you know, I think many of them, I, I, I talked to a few people, and a lot of them, they're not really against the opinion, whether it's zombies or anything. You know, No one's really upset. What they were upset was that you couldn't reconcile that... Um, because, because of your scientific understanding of today, of our nature, of our, of our understanding of geography, etc., that it, it doesn't make sense for such a large number of people to be hidden. Excellent. Let me repeat what I said in the lecture. And again, people yes. want to jump on 10 seconds without the whole lecture. I said, does Allah require us to believe in this? If he does, then Samirna wa Allah. That point nobody seems to have gotten in. That's the whole point. Is this a requirement that Allah has put on us to believe that there are a hundred million people living on this earth somewhere? If the Quran said so. If we had a hadith that we believed in to be authentic and it was unequivocal and clear, my point and argument was within Sunni methodology. And that's what, again, our hasty, overzealous, undereducated critics didn't understand. It's completely within Sunni paradigm. No, no, I'm saying that, um, I'm sorry to cut you off. The, the prem they're saying that the premise you're operating out of where you, you're having difficulty in reconciling uh, this this is what their 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 problem is. Not, it's not doesn't have anything to do with the Ajijah Majuja whether what well, what your theory was. You could your you could your theory could have been whatever. It could have been aliens or whatever. 
that wasn't it was the premise that you were operating from that it wasn't you were it wasn't sitting well with you that uh, I think that again may, maybe it could be that I, I listened to lecture again I didn't yeah. find I said problematic but maybe some people found it problematic I will reiterate yes if the Quran and Sunnah were explicit then we don't care what science says logic says rationality says we could be wrong about that when the Quran and Sunnah is not explicit or authentic in the case of the Sunni and our modern knowledge of geography clearly belies the fact that there are tens of millions of people living anywhere in the world put together now we say what then do we do with the story of Jews? do you understand the point both yes. of these are in integral to get to the next stage both premises have to be equally valid once again if the texts of the Quran were unequivocal and Allah Azza wa is telling us that there's going to be a dabba coming from the earth from the earth okay we believe in it there's going to be a dabba coming there uh, and if Allah Azza wa says resurrection whatever these yes. are things that are beyond our rationality will accept it but because the Quran is not clear about Yajuj and Mochu still being alive right now. And because there is no authentic hadith according to my paradigm, if you believe the other hadith is authentic, then, then that's a different paradigm. But Sunni usul remains the same. I, and, and, and by the way, there's a great bahth, the advanced students you read, Dr. Hakam al-Mutayri, one of the students of Ibn Uthaymin who studied with me, but he's much more knowledgeable than me in, in hadith. He has an entire bahth in Arabic online about making this hadith weak about um, yeah, Jews, Jews trying to carve their way out uh, every single day. There's only one hadith and Ibn Kathir considered it weak and, and many scholars considered it weak. If it is weak and it is weak, we have no evidence that Ya'juj yeah, Ma'juj is alive right now, number one. Number two, modern science clearly belies the fact and I don't understand why that's controversial to say that it is really not possible for tens of millions of people to still remain undiscovered. They cannot be living under the ocean scientifically. If it's a miracle of Allah, then so be it. But it's not in the Quran that it's a miracle. So once again, to claim that Ya'juj and Ma'juj are alive right now is something that our texts are not requiring us to believe. To claim that that is a requirement of faith is itself an innovation that some of my critics have fallen into. To claim that there's ijma' on this issue, frankly, shows that they haven't studied ijma' and hujiyatul ijma' and the fact that it is there is no ijma' on this issue whatsoever. And as soon as I quoted one scholar, they hadn't even heard of that he heard that he said this. Deja vu. This is exactly what happened with Sheikh Saadi and his views and my first view are essentially the same that. They're modern people and their descendants will come and they do something. And I, I posited two views, by the way. The second one is a possibility, but it wasn't my main one. The first one, as I said, was very similar to what Sheikh Saadi said. So in my humble opinion, and obviously I'm biased because I am looking at it from my perspective, I think there was a, a mountain made out of a molehill. A far bigger issue was created. And ironically, my critics felt that I'm uh, causing people to deviate and go astray. SubhanAllah, I have hundreds and thousands of lectures and videos. If they had remained silent, people would have just moved on. No big deal. The very fact that they're jumping in and making a big deal and causing such a controversy, I would say they're the ones causing it a bigger deal than I am. I'm preaching and teaching lots of things. And yeah. if they hadn't made it a controversy, people would have just listened and moved on to it. And in the process of making it a controversy, with my gentle utmost respect to them, they indicate their own level of study and research and frankly even maturity and wisdom. 
the senior ulama of the Western world. And there are ulama in the Western world. We have to get over this issue that ulama are only in the Eastern world. This is another fetishization that happens, that to be an alim, you have to be a, a Saudi or somebody. No, there are ulama that have studied 20 years, 30 years, and they are scholars. Those senior ulama, I can sit with them and agree to disagree. You always find the younger, overzealous, not very wise crowd who feels if they don't defend Islam, then Islam is going to be destroyed by these you know, liberals or whatnot. And it's not just my critics, by the way. It's a phenomenon. Madhadism comes from this phenomenon. Uh, other famous bloggers or infamous bloggers come from this phenomenon. Undereducated, overzealous. If I don't do something, Islam is going to go astray. SubhanAllah, who appointed you to be Islam's defender? Allah will protect Islam. He protected it before you were born. He'll protect it after you die. If I said something wrong, may Allah forgive me. The ummah will still be preserved. They're not going to be overall led astray because of one two-second clip out of hundreds of lectures I've given. In any case, my, my position is very clear. I didn't say necessarily that uh, scenario two is true. I simply gave two scenarios. And I said that maybe there is a third, but these two are plausible in light of the Quran and Sunnah and in light of what we know about the modern world. So here, here's the undercurrent of what's going on. And I know you don't listen to Muslim podcasts or, um, you know, other things related to what Muslim, English-speaking Muslims are, are producing. So there's a lot of um, controversy related to how Muslim scholars, um, think tanks, leaders, I don't know what you want to call them, but how they're dealing with reconciling scientific issues such as evolution. Uh, someone recently or not too long ago posited uh, the idea that Adam al-Islam doesn't necessarily have to be uh, a complete uh, homo sapien. He could have been a, uh, a version, maybe, I don't know if it was, he was positing the idea that he was uh, any other different type of uh, Neanderthal or, or Denisovan or whatever. But the idea is that people are trying to reconcile their uh, scientific issues with how they view the faith. Do you think, and I think one, their fear is that you're actually go, also going down that rabbit hole. I think you, you've made it clear with your past five to 10 minutes of talking that you're not going down that faith or, or down that path, but uh, rather you were just trying to illustrate a couple different ideas that you had floating around regarding this issue. But do you consider this issue of reconciling science and faith and specifically miracles and whatnot, do you think this is something that Muslim leaders, um, institutions should avoid altogether? In every generation, there are new controversies that come and the Ummah and its scholars and its leaders are obliged to take on those controversies. One of the main controversies of our generation is the alleged discrepancies between A, Islam and modern science, and B, Islam and human rights. These are two separate tracks, by the way. And our next generation that is coming of age, some of them, many of them, are grappling with these issues. Some of them have decided to compartmentalize and not think about these issues. Good for them. I'm not even asking them to do that. And for that group, if my talks confuse you, I've already said, don't listen to me. Wallahi, I, 
I'm not asking for following or whatnot. I want to preserve Islam in the next generations and ask Allah to guide me and guide others through me. And by the way, Allah will be the final judge. And in this world, history will also be the judge who benefited you more. And we will see, and Allah Azza wa is the final judge. But the point being that those groups of people that are grappling with Islam and science or Islam and human rights, surely some of our ulama need to address those challenges. It is, it is a, a, a no-brainer. It's a given that our scholars, some of them who are qualified, need to take on these challenges like previous scholars defended Islam in the past. Our scholars need to defend Islam today. Now, how that is done and the methodology that is followed and to what level of uh, change is going to happen, this is a case-by-case -case basis. Let me give you one simple example. This whole genre of scientific tafsir and scientific miracles of the Qur'an, the one that we grew up in in the 90s, right? Proving that the Qur'an is true because of how it conforms with modern science. One can argue this entire genre is a bid'ah and it is going against the salaf. And the same anger that was shown against me, rethinking through Ya'ju Ma'ju, should have been shown against them for daring to say that Allah mentions the embryo in the Quran because Ibn Abbas didn't say this. You know, Khatada did not say this about you know, any of the scientific issues and whatnot. But for some reason, that genre is accepted as being valid because it's for the defense of Islam. By the way, I'm a critic of that genre. I don't think it is helpful. And I am very much in sympathy with those who say trying to read the science into the Quran is going to be counterproductive in the long run. Because there are certain issues that are not quote-unquote scientific, like Adam. So you're going to make an exception for Adam and not for the others. You're going to end up being mutually inconsistent. And science That's is evolving. Science evolves. What? Science is always constantly changing. And, That's another reason as well, that science is constantly evolving. And so it doesn't make sense to read in current scientific theories into the Quran. Allah did not reveal the Quran to be a book of science. But my point is that well, there's going to be give and take. There's going to be bizarre views. There's going to be right and wrong. Somebody has to do it. Who is this? Which method is the correct one? Allah will decide in the future, in the akhirah. Sorry, in the akhirah, I meant. And in this world, history will tell what was beneficial, what wasn't. I don't know. Evolution, you've heard my talks about them. And I posited some basic theories that we're going to have to make an exception for Adam and whatnot. I know there are others that don't agree with what I said and, and they want to basically say that Adam is somehow linked with one. I, I, I'll take it on a case-by-case -case basis. What I argued in my talk about evolution was the Quran is very clear that there was a person called Adam and that all of us are descendants of Adam and that Adam was created and sent down to this earth. That is very explicit in the Quran. To read in metaphorical language to this entire story is problematic. I asked Muslim biologists who specialize in evolution to come forth and try to give us some type of theory that protects the Quranic imagery and takes into account what we know as incontrovertible facts, because there are facts that don't change. There were things called hominids, you know, however, a hundred thousand years ago. What were they with Bani Adam? I don't know. I'm not a biologist. I never taught biology in my theory of evolution i'm talking about the islamic thing so people should do this some of them will make mistakes some of them will be more correct to the truth and maybe one or two will be spot on we're going to have to acknowledge there's going to be experiments going on 
and see what people have to say. I don't know what else to say to that. You know, and I I think what, I mean, I I think it's fine that people are operating or coming up with ideas related to uh, evolution, but my fear is that it's it's happening because they're being pressured, like as if they need to um, bring a a reconciliation of some sort. Like how are they not being pressured? People are leaving the faith, and anybody who denies this is not involved with the ummah. Look around you in, in, in the Western ummah in particular. I'm yeah. not talking about other places, especially in this country. I have met many dozens of parents who have brought their young men and women to me, and online and whatnot. And on campus, college campuses. I mean, you know, let me just tell you a personal anecdote. I taught for 10 years in academia. Almost every class or every semester, there was a young man or woman with a Muslim-esque name, right? Islamic name or whatnot. And I find out that, oh, yeah, my dad's a Muslim, but, you know, I don't know. I'm discovering the faith now. I mean, these are people that are so far away. they, They don't even classify as Muslim. And these people... Like if you ask them, a lot of them like, well, it's the same mythology, Adam and Eve in the Bible, Adam and Eve in the Quran. Yeah, it's all mythology. Yeah. Don't you think that some of our scholars should say, no, no, our version is different and this is why. Don't you see a need for that? Yeah. Why be dismissive of the attempt to do that? If the attempt is blatantly wrong, such as saying there was no Adam, then I will refute that, no problem. But if the attempt is to try to find a theory that protects the sanctity of the Quran and also explains certain facts. Why would that be wrong? I don't understand why you find that problematic. Well, the, the reason being is because, just as we discussed, uh, that science is evolving and our nature, when we are trying to reconcile something that's always evolving, we're going to end up tripping all over ourselves in, in our explanations that, you know, I mean, I can, I can, I can understand like when, you posit an idea, just like how you did with your Yajuji Maju, that, hey, th- I'm not saying this is fact, but this is a possibility. When you frame that's it like that, that, that's okay. But I think when we're trying to, I think, well, let me just talk about my uh, issues with faith when I was growing up, that I found out that I had a deeper problem, that it wasn't just, you know, the issue of the whale and, and Yunus Al-Sam not being, uh, the Yunus wasn't able to fit into a uh, blue whale's mouth, but I found out that my understanding of the creator was weak to begin with, that I ha- I need to accept the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can do anything he wants and he can f- bend the rules when he wants, he can con- uh, uh, abide by the physical realities of the world if he so chooses to. And uh, what are your so same, on that? point is very, very yes. simple. Different strokes for different folks. Yes. What worked for you might not work for other people. For some people, the best way is to ignore this entire topic and just hit them with raw iman, raw Quran, whatnot. Great. For other people, they're not even going to be willing to go there until you answer this question. Or at least you give some, some basic understanding that will allow them to move to the next level. What is wrong with giving different solutions for different people? Not everybody's on the same wavelength. In my personal case, for example, like I said, because of my relationship with the Quran and because, alhamdulillah, I've been half it for 30-something years or whatnot, yani, the Quran has been so so integral to my life. 
I can't imagine the Quran to be false. Alhamdulillah, that's my iman in the Quran. So in my perspective, from my paradigm, I'm not, it's, it's, I'm already there at a certain level where the Quran has to be true. But that's me. What do you do to a 20-year-old college student who has never, ever really enjoyed the ladha of the Quran, who has never experienced the sweetness of iman, and who feels, until you can answer this challenge, I'm not even going to be willing to listen to your other things. So I think there's, I don't know, I disagree with what you're trying to say, and that all I'm saying is for different people, there are different solutions. Let some of our scholars take on these challenges, and it'll work in some groups of people. I, I don't see what's wrong with that. I'm, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying that as long as you don't um, box yourself into these um, these evolving ideas, things like some, I know yeah, 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 no, you don't. But there, sometimes what happens is that when people put forward ideas, they kind of lock themselves into it, and then they end up having to defend it because they get criticized about it. And I think what um, anyone, and if, if anyone so chooses to jump into this arena, that they should be understanding in the sense that, hey, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna receive a lot of critique for this, and I can't allow to allow myself to take it personally when I Excellent. do. Excellent. I also I have to point out another phenomenon that we see and it is a, a, a an emotional counter response to any attempt to preserve the faith or to involve ourselves with modern issues there's an emotional counter response which was manifested even in the Ajudi Majud issue and that is to immediately backlash and defend that which does not need to be defended and to mock anything that is attempting to push the conversation forward it's very easy to find refuge and safety in the past. It's very easy to do that. And we find this in some of these, again, modern, you know, what's the critics that are coming out. And they're more fundamentalist than Islam requires. They start defending what doesn't need to be any change in fiqh, for example. Any change in anything, automatic, oh, you're a liberal, oh, you're a sellout. And without exception, all of them are not real students of fiqh. Such yeah. that when somebody comes and says, you know what, maybe we can rethink this through. I'm, I'm talking about even fiqh issues, right? It's a sign of an overzealous mindset to backlash immediately and say, oh, just because my sheikh taught me this, this is the haq incontrovertible. And I find this what you're talking about as well. The well, attempt to bring forth a solution is immediately dismissed as somehow pandering to modernism, pandering to the liberals out there. And that's a, 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 a mindset that will also not help the ummah. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? There's yeah, I understand it. It's like, I know, I know, because I've d debated, I have close friends of mine who are atheists, and if it's not one thing you give an explanation for, it's another thing. And you just keep on chasing them, with offering them. They. It seems like whenever... And I have a number. It's multiple. I would say three friends. This is through work and stuff. These aren't like people who I, you know, hang out with on a regular basis. But but um, these are discussions that I have with them where it's never enough, and it's always leading to them um, their inability to recognize or submit to something that's greater than them. It's more their issues are related to them not being in control of their destiny. And they this explicitly on Facebook yeah. and Twitter, the primary problems of atheism come from their own self-arrogance. I've said this yeah. multiple times. Does that mean 
that we simply ignore any and every argument. No, simple as that. There's a middle ground here. Let's not go to either extreme of uber fundamentalism, which is, you know, uber fundamentalism is, 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 this, is the retreat of the intellectual cowards. They just quickly jump to the tradition in their minds and then khalas, all conversation end. And let's not also become ultra progressive. Let's be the ummah and muslim that we're told to be. Earlier in the conversation, Sheikh, you mentioned that the your primary objective is that you're trying to safeguard the faith of the future generation. And I've heard other people say that, well, um, you know, similarly that, you know, we are trying to basically keep Islam alive in whatever means possible, right? So you will, like, find ways to facilitate their salvation. Um, and others will say, the counter will be like, well, you're just going to water down the religion and in two generations you're going to be, the, it'll be gone anyways because you kept watering it down. Um, I, I see I see where you're coming from, but the other side is saying that, because some people would say, I, I've heard other people like who would be your critics would say, <coughs> well, if they don't want to accept this part of Islam or practice this, then they should just leave Islam. Like kind of like very flippant, you know what I'm saying? Um, what are your th like thoughts? Yeah, yeah. The, he, yeah, Mahi, you bring up a great idea that how much do we, uh, you know, bend ourselves backwards to you know cater to these people who are so weak in their in their faith. I mean, I understand like you know you do your best to you know try to keep them in in our faith, but like I know like in one of your lectures or you said something about um, I, I who am I to tell uh, a female Muslim uh, a Muslim sister that she should wear her hijab, and I thought that was kind of an odd statement to make because. Wait, whoa, whoa, bro! Find that exact clip, put it in context. I mean, you, you, uh, I, uh, had I would never have said something like that. It, was, it is our job, but maybe what I said was that the right people should tell her, not well, everybody yeah. should be speaking. I, I would never just uncategorically say that, bro. So be careful there. I mean, uh, it seemed like it was like men shouldn't be able to, shouldn't be telling women how to dress, and it seemed like you were kind of catering to some of the or i don't know if it was catering but it seemed like some conciliatory words towards the feminist crowd and i was like oh i don't know why she's saying this but i'm glad we're having this conversation now to clarify it hundreds of lectures if you find a 10 second clip listen to overall and ask me that's exactly why of course one of the commandments of our religion is to command the good forbid the evil and generally speaking modest clothing is something that uh should be done uh you know both ways but given the dynamics and given the cultural and given, given, given everything, should every man just walk, walk into any masjid and comment on every sister's inadequate hijab? Even you would, even inshallah, that's exactly Of course the not. Yeah, of course not. Uh, it was just like, I know I knew what you were getting at, but uh, it's like I know people who take those snippets and, and sometimes well, they say, oh, Sheikh is going down uh, this path of modernism or not modernism, but uh, this uh, reformist agenda. And a lot of people are, are terrified <laughs> that you're going down that road. Of being counter-reactionary for the sake of being counter-reactionary. Yeah. Okay? Uh, two, three generations ago, if a woman walked into any one generation ago, if a woman walked into any master without a headscarf, she would be rebuked and kicked out, right? In the current climate that we live in, if a college student comes to one of our masajid here in America and she's wearing tight jeans and a shirt and she puts on a scarf as she walks in, are you going to tell her, get out of here, you shouldn't wear jeans? I don't, think, I, I, I don't think that's a problem anymore, though. I, I mean, I think there was, well, it might have been when we were younger, right? Give me an example. Uh, there, give me an example. 
she comes to the masjid for the first time. We all understand this is a bit of a cliched example, but we understand the point. And by the way, it happened in one of the communities I lived in. It happened exactly this. And I had to daunt the aunties for doing so. And she went out bawling with tears because she came to me. She's like, I just came. I needed, I went to had a crisis and I needed to come and just pray and whatnot. And I was dressed in the clothes I was at university. She literally said that to me. And I was like, look, okay, I understand. Technically, she shouldn't be wearing tight jeans when she comes in. But she's not a regular. She's just, I mean, you yeah. know, you get my point. Here. I understand. I understand. I just want you to clar clarify what you were saying. There's a person as well. And there's a methodology to do that. It just, you don't just come and start cliching the issue of men talking about women's hijabs. Of course, our sisters and our brothers are to a dress code. But here's the point. And the point is, is, is very straightforward. You are saying watering Islam down and bending the knee and whatnot. And the response is, you've already made up your minds that any change by you, I don't mean you two, generically, yeah, yeah. pandering to those evil people out there. And that mindset is just as dangerous as the mindset of the progressives. That's my point. And we see this in our younger, un undereducated, overzealous crowd. We see this, that great ulama, far more senior than me, come and say, well, okay, maybe we can rethink over this issue. And immediately, oh, they've sold out. They've never studied fiqh, usul al-fiqh. They haven't trained themselves in the disciplines of the sharia. But just because a great scholar rethinks through an issue, their visceral reaction is to reject the scholar and the scholarship. And that narrow-mindedness is also dangerous for the future of Islam. That's my point to you, Sam. Yeah. Not every change is watering down. What if the change is wisening up? Why did you automatically assume, by you, again, I don't mean you too, why is this assumption that any change from what my teacher taught me in the 80s and 90s is something bad? No, the sharia is meant to be lived in every society. And it is the role of the scholars of that society to see where is the red line, what needs to be done. And you know what? Even the worst critics of me and all of us that are doing all of this, uh, this, this, this fine-tuning, even the worst critics, I guarantee you, if they're living in this land, in their own lifestyles and the lifestyles of their children, they are compromising from what some pristine, ultra-conservative version that they might have think is the ideal. It's just a matter of picking and choosing what is convenient, what isn't. And so the bottom line, let the ulama of each land, and I don't consider myself to be of the top alama, no, let the great ulama, and there are people senior to me, there are people that live in America, that if I have a fiqhi question, I will call up and I will ask, right? Yeah. Great ulama, that I consider to be genuine yani, uh, mashayikh and whatnot. Let them lead the way forward. Let Follow their collective guidance. See what <clears throat> there is going to be a mainstream within uh, the ulama of a land. See what they're saying. Gender issues, segregation issues, hijab issues, dealing with the LGBT community. These are all ijtihadi at some level. What do you mean by some level? The finer details of hijab, right? And I've given you, Mahin, you took my class on, on, on the fiqh of precious provisions and whatnot. I went over this in detail that the hijab, there are requirements that are in the sharia, and then there are requirements that are cultural. The hijab of our sisters in Nigeria is not the same as the hijab in Saudi, which is not the same as the hijab in, in Indonesia, which is not the same as hijab. You can fine-tune. As well, how do you deal with somebody who falls short? If your society is 99% practicing and the 1% isn't, you have more leeway to be a little bit harsher. Whereas if your society is 1% practicing 
and 99% not, then the pros and cons, the masalih and the fasid change. So my simple advice to the listeners is follow the bulk of your local ulama. Ulama that live with you in your societies. That's not a bizarre fatwa. That's what every famous alim from the beginning of time has said. Ibn al-Qayyim and others, this is well-known fiqh. Do not outsource your fatwa and your understanding of Islam to some alim 5,000 miles away. Yeah. We'll go local and find somebody that's living in your land. Yeah, um, well, I can tell you this much, that many of us, including myself, um, um, are very worried about the trajectory Muslim organizations have taken in the United States with relations to how close they've aligned themselves with leftist movements. And when you go to Isna, you're seeing Bernie Sanders and you're seeing Trevor Noah up there. And you're like, what? what's going on? I mean, this is a Islamic conference that's supposed to be for Muslims. And you're seeing, and I, I understand where they're coming from because they're trying to stay relevant. I understand that. If, if anyone's listening from Islam, I'm not knocking you. I'm just saying, like, this is um, our mindset has become relevancy and about gaining followers and, you know, cons- consistently spitting out things that will uh, indicate to the masses that, hey, you know what, where's something that are we're worth your attention? I don't know so, how you feel about oh, that. I, I, uh, I got this is a deep topic. By the way, how long are you going to continue? Because I'm worried about our listeners as well. How long can they listen? <laughs> they can listen forever. This is this forever. is a golden time. Maybe we should have another another session. But if, yeah, this. if you want to wrap this up with um, that, that's fine. Look, we will have to accept the fact that different people have different levels of practicing yes. and different understandings of Islam. Every one of us will have to decide what we want to do in our immediate circle, in our immediate family and friends, in our immediate children. And we strive for that goal. We'll have to accept that not everybody is going to live like that. Not everybody is going to have that. And that there will be Muslims that are on the left of the scale, on the right of the scale. Acceptance doesn't mean we accept morally. It means reality-wise, there will be people like this. And there should be, hopefully, a spectrum of acceptability and tolerance, and then red lines on both of them that, hey, you shouldn't go there. If somebody joins a jihadist movement, we say, you've crossed a red line, bro. shouldn't go there. If somebody becomes a hardcore Salaf, you're tabligh, we're like, okay, fine, you just live your life and may Allah bless you. You see what I'm saying, right? There's a red line on that side. Likewise, there's a red line on the other side. Call it the more liberal side of the spectrum. If you have groups of Muslims that are coming to Isna just because of Bernie Sanders, right? And by the way, I was at the Bernie Sanders lecture in Isna. And honestly, I have never felt that buzz for the last 10 years at Isna. I have never seen the amounts of crowds. It was massive crowds. Everybody that was there that will tell you. I was there in the audience. The buzz, the excitement, the the, the, the whatnot. So us ulama and peace and, and, and speakers and du'at, I'm not calling myself na'alim. I'm saying us preachers do not get the crowds that Bernie Sanders does. What does that mean? Does that mean we should just be quiet and let Bernie Sanders take central stage? No, I came on right after Bernie Sanders. The next speech was ours uh, and, and we spoke there. What do we do? I wasn't in charge of this. Now, I didn't invite Bernie Sanders, but what do you do when Trevor Noah and Bernie Sanders brings more Muslims to Isna than Imam Siraj Wahaj and Zayd Shakir and Fulan and Alan? What do you do? I don't know. I wasn't in charge. Do you say, no, we will invite Mufti, Sheikh, Alama, so-and-so, even if there's five people? 
or we're going to invite Bernie Sanders and bring whatever, 10,000, then we'll have Imam Zaid speak afterwards and, and, and try to benefit. I, I don't know, but I will say one thing. There is a spectrum of acceptability that we're going to have to accept exists. And what happened this year at the conference by inviting Bernie Sanders in particular, I didn't find that beyond the spectrum of acceptability. It is permissible. And it's something that brought a lot of Muslims. It made them excited. Now, are there some dangers that come? Definitely, yes. And if you listen to my lectures, I have said this many times. I am against, even if some of my dearest friends are involved, this 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 movement that seeks to make Islam into nothing but social justice. And I think that's dangerous. And I think that real social justice will never occur without a theological change, without a paradigm shift that includes aqidah and amal al-salih, right? And so I find that to be somewhat problematic. But have they crossed the red line? As of yet, the main people that are involved, I, I don't think they have. I think yeah. it's not the way forward, but I don't see them to be evil or negative people. And yeah. you know what? Allah created people differently. Perhaps some Muslims will find that to be more conducive to their understanding of Islam and be practicing or religious because of it. Good for them. Every one of us is going to have to decide what our spectrum of tolerance is and what our red lines are. And how will they decide that? By choosing their scholars that will tell them this is acceptable and these are the red lines because the average Muslim cannot do that. So in the end of the day, whatever you feel or I feel, the Muslim out there is going to have to decide what they feel. Because you can say whatever you want. That Muslim is going to choose, you know what, this is my spectrum I'm comfortable with. I'm fine with Sheikh so-and-so, Sheikh so-and-so, Sheikh so-and-so. And that Sheikh, I think he's too liberal. That Sheikh, I think he's too hardcore. If I come and say, I think that Sheikh is too liberal. And my, the Muslim listening to me doesn't feel that, what am I, how, what does that do to me? 100%. I agree with you. And uh, I, I understand the dilemma as well. Uh, I'm just posing ideas and, and questions that are in everyone's minds right now. And I wanted to make sure that uh, that your thoughts on that matter are also conveyed. Uh, because these are, uh, this is the only opportunity that we have to talk with you. So we want to make sure that we get yeah. squeeze our, squeezing. Yeah, we might have another three years for another show. Yeah. We might. <laughs> Inshallah, we'll have another one soon. So any specific yeah. questions that I think you think are still misunderstood or, or need to be. I think we covered most of them that are germane to the. Yeah, uh, issues that are happening right now. There are other questions that so many other listeners sent me. I'm sorry we couldn't get to them all, but I tried Anything to include them. Our topic because I want to make sure that that is done. Exactly. That's and that's what I think we knocked out today, inshallah. So uh, let's go ahead and uh, wrap this up. I, I actually yeah. uh, uh, one one of our listeners actually requested something for the sheikh. Uh, so sh he wanted me to pass on some. So sheikh, there was a brother who met you at Isna, who gave you a silver dollar coin. For your coin collection this past isna yes i remember yes had so he, he basically uh, says he, he want, his name is ibrahim he is considered to be mad mamluk's number one fan historically you know for the last three years or so as long as we've been running hmm. and he said he's like tell the sheikh salam alaikum the inshallah i plan with allah's help to go on hajj with him whenever you go next time alhamdulillah jazakallah khair so a free plug guys uh, you allowed me to do it so i'm going to do it now go inshallah ahead. next we, this year we had an amazing, amazing Hajj package, one of the most cost-effective and one of the best in all of North America. Inshallah, next year we're going to make it bigger and better and the same price, inshallah, which was 6000 something. 
and uh, asked the people there. Uh, it was one of the best. It was in my, you know, alhamdulillah, almost 20 hajjahs I've done. This was one of the best hajj I have ever done in my life. I genuinely enjoyed it, but it's only meant for people who can walk at least half an hour, 45 minutes for three days of minna. If you cannot walk, uh, if you're elderly or sick or wheelchair or whatnot, we can't do that because there is uh, walking done. If you can walk, excellent hajj package because we're going to be walking to the jamarat and back to the tents and it's a beautiful package. So I hope our brother joins and I hope all of our listeners as well follow me on Facebook and then join one of these packages inshallah. Sheikh, make Sorry. sure you send me the links so that I'll put that in the episode description so that they can quickly uh, access uh, that. Uh, all right. Yeah, I want to go with ahead. One, with one uh, generic point and that is my advice to myself first and foremost and all of my listeners is to concentrate more on our own relationship with Allah rather than with other people's faults and mistakes and to understand that us speaking about other people is going to have very minimal impact on them and it's going to have more of an impact on us on Judgment Day. And that's one of the reasons why I don't concentrate on other people. It's not a part of my agenda. The best way to refute somebody is to bring something positive that is better than what that person is bringing. That's the best way. That's been my philosophy for the last 20 years, and it's worked. Inshallah, that will continue to work. You do not build people by destroying, in your mind, others. Frankly, you don't destroy them. You only destroy them in your clique anyway. But you don't build people by destroying others. You build people by giving them something that will bring them closer to Allah and His Messenger. And I am very honest here. I, I seek Allah's refuge from fame. I hate what has happened of celebrity uh, scholars, and I've said this multiple times. I don't like it at all, but I can't help how other people are creating this culture. I don't like it, and we have to stop putting our scholars on these pedestals of being Hollywood, Bollywood stars and taking pictures with them, and I don't like this at all. At the same time, that doesn't mean I just stop giving da'wah. I'm going to continue giving da'wah. I'm going to continue preaching and teaching. I ask Allah Azawajal to guide me and guide those who, who, who criticize me. But my gentle advice to them is build something other and become known for something other than talking about other people. Because that's not how you will leave a positive legacy. History shows us that no scholar became a scholar by talking about other people. Teach the people what is beneficial. And if you disagree with somebody, then present the alternative with better evidences and inshallah that's the best way forward that's my advice to myself and my critics and in the end of the day anybody who has iman and taqwa regardless of the school of thought that they follow anybody who has genuine tazkiyat to nafs that is the person that is going to go to jannah i pray that allah azawajal makes me amongst those people i mean and us as well sheikh make keep us in your doors as well yeah uh, always a pleasure to connect with you again yeah. uh Jazakallah khair everyone for joining us this, uh, for this episode and Jazakallah khair Sheikh Yasser Qadi for your uh, precious time. We will see you all next time. Oh, make sure to help us on Patreon.com. We're not like the British competitors. We don't have the huge weight of the uh, uh, Ummah of the UK supporting our efforts. We we rely on your little micro -don donations for making this effort possible. So make sure you go to patreon.com backslash the Mad Mamluks. Alternatively, if you don't understand what Patreon is, uh, go to themadmamluks.com backslash donate and you can use PayPal. 
Yeah, make sure to subscribe. Make sure you subscribe. Blood Brothers. Yes. Yeah, they're putting out some great stuff. So Blood subscribe Brother there. And your new podcast, Mahin. Go ahead. Uh, Sultan's about. yeah, Sultan's sneakers. Um, it's available pod- on iTunes. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, and now Pocket Casts. Yeah. And I should have YouTube launch soon. And Mort's channel. Those of you guys who follow Mad Mamus know about Mort. He's got he's got Muzzy Buzz. M u z z y b u z z. Zakhlaq here, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you all next time. Assalamu alaikum. Oh.